Welcome to Week in Horror. You gotta be fucking kidding. The only podcast that will feed your horror need. The need to feed. With JL. Yeah, I'm a fucking masochist. I'll watch that shit. <laughs> Eugene. Somebody has to be the sex symbol. I'm sorry. Alex. Shit, I just demonetize this forever. And Johnny O. How do you like that shit? Got half of the monologue. <laughs> Before unmuting myself. Golly, it's one of those fucking days. <laughs> With industry guests. Hi, this is Richard Oakes, director of host. Hey, this is Adam Leader, director of host. This is Matthew Mark Hunter. I'm Don and Ellie. And you're listening to Weekend Horror. And you're listening to Weekend Horror. And this is Weekend Horror. And you're listening to Weekend Horror. Welcome to prime time, bitch! News, trivia, and more. One by one, we will take you. Join our live show Wednesdays at 7 central, youtube.com slash weekinhorror. And wherever you listen to podcasts, Week in Horror. Stay scared. <laughs> hey! Welcome, welcome, horror fans. It is Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time. That means it's time for another episode of the Week in Horror podcast. The only podcast with liner notes in the Necronomicon. And if you're listening to us on your favorite podcast host, you too can join us here on YouTube for our live show. So you too can get in on all the bloody fun. What are you waiting for? Join us! This week we are covering select horror films released July 31st through August 6th. Thank you all so much for joining us. I am not Eugene. I'm covering Eugene for a brief moment. I'm JL, and with me tonight are Aaron and Eugene. <laughs> Hello, folks. What's up, everybody? There he is. We were getting worried. Yeah, oh, I lost power. So we lost power, and the computer flickered um, earlier today. And so the computer been kind of well, cause uploading footage for a client. And oh. so it was kind of, every, every, it's been kind of wonky ever since. So. <laughs> blame but, Abbott. Just blame Abbott. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, I will definitely, I will pass it. Oh, you know, Eugene's got the lead tonight. He's just having a little bit of a connection issue there. And, uh, but man, so tonight is special. Tonight is a special night. And I know Eugene knows, I, I know Aaron, and you, you're familiar like this, but for everybody in our live chat, I want to welcome all of you to our 150th episode. 150 episodes. <laughs> what does Alex do? <laughs> I'm honored and terrified. 150 episodes of Week in Horror. And not a, I don't think... I don't think a week missed since we started this bad boy. So 150 weeks, 150 episodes. And that's not only 150 episodes, that's 150 episodes of Week in Horror. That is 31 bloodbaths, 31 after darks. And not to mention all the other uh, stuff that we do. So 150 episodes that we have uh, that we are on tonight. So as you saw the thumbnail, uh, I put the 150 episodes on there. But we also, in celebration of our 150th episode, we have something special planned for the trivia tonight. Something that we made just for tonight. Okay, and I'll and I'll, I'll should I show them? Should I show them what it is, or should we wait? You have to guess my actual hair color. 
I don't. I don't know. Let's, let's ask the audience. Do you want to know now or do you want to wait? Let us know in the live chat. Do you want it? Okay, we have a surprise, and I can show it to you. I can share it on the screen so y'all can see it. Do y'all want to see it now, or do y'all want to see it later when we do the trivia question? See, I'm getting uh, show me now. Uh, am I right now? So what I'm picking up on is show them later. Yeah. Even though I'm a former <laughs> trivia champion, I can attest to the fact we're all a bunch of cheating sons of bitches, so every one of them is going to say now. <laughs> Charlie Weld Charlie says now I could die any minute. <laughs> you never know. You, it, it, it's, everybody wants to see it now, except for God420. God420 wants to see it at the end. But apparently, but majority rules. We live in a democracy. Well, or, I mean, you know. God four twenty already knows what it is. So. Ah, and Crafty Keela says I can't stay long. So now, lol. Okay, so for those who are unable to stay, I we will we will show this now. So I will share this image. So we got together with our in-house artist Joshua Olson, who does all of our amazing artwork, and he created a new. Where'd it go? Damn it! Oh, come here, you stupid thing. Wait for that. And he created uh, a special artwork solely for our episode tonight. And I will share this over. And bam. In celebration of our 150th episode. Let me back that out a little bit so people can see it. Oh, I meant to take the banner down. There we go. So y'all can see it. There we go. Yeah! Look at that artwork. I, I love this artwork. So we put this artwork... On a brand new pint glass and on a coffee mug, so we put them on both. Just you know, because they look they look excellent on on either one. So it's a limited edition pint glass or a limited edition coffee mug, and you can get the coffee mug in white or black. But this is the special 150th episode artwork that Joshua Olson did for us, and yep. that will be the trivia prize tonight. For the, uh, for the special trivia question that we have. So, I will give you all a heads up. I hope you know your Week in Horror history. So, because the trivia question pertains to us. And not to the movies we're talking about tonight. Well, no, so, you, oh, can't, you can't tell them because then they're like, oh, let me zone out and wait for the, the trivia question. No, I no, mean, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I, I want to give them the heads up. If that that this prize is gonna go to, I want this prize to go to a fan, to go to like a like like one of our one of our diehard fans. I want it to go to someone who's like fucking weak in horror, man. <laughs> Can't get enough. So, but this is uh, the special limited edition artwork that Joshua also made for us, and we we will be giving away um, the winner of the trivia prize will get their choice between a coffee mug or a pint glass. Either way, they both look amazing. So, if you are unable to win this tonight, these items will be on our Teespring for a limited amount of time. Very limited, because we only have 150th episode. So, this is solely in celebration of this episode tonight. So, I will be pulling those from the Teespring. I will be archiving those and putting them, uh, putting them in the Week in Horror vault. So, this is the opportunity to get one. But tonight is the opportunity for one of you to win one. So, thank you so much, Craft Tequila, for popping by since I can't stay because baby duty, so I guess that's me missing out on the mug. Oh, I'm sorry, Craft Tequila. That's a shame. But at least oh. you got to see it. Thank you for popping in. We do appreciate that. So, there we go. What do you guys think of the, of the new artwork? Oh, the, the artwork is fantastic. Isn't that amazing? 
Awesome. I have to wait till I'm a little bit less impoverished and uh, try to buy one before next. Or before they go <laughs> For anybody interested, if you want to go check out the Teespring, the Teespring link is in the description of this video. You can hit that Teespring. It'll take you right over there, and the, everything will be available. You get your selection of either the pint glass or the mug, and I've reduced those prices to make them a little bit more amenable because I know Teespring is a little on the expensive side. So, But this is uh, solely in celebration of tonight. So I'm really, really excited about this. This was really cool artwork. Thank, big, big, huge thanks to uh, Josh Olson for making that up for us. He, he is a badass. And let me yeah, get he this. Continuously keeps doing good artwork too. Just amazing. oh yeah, definitely. Okay, so before we dive into our selections tonight, let's see who we have in the live chat because we have a we have a bunch of people in the live chat tonight. So let's say hi real quick. Travis Brown is in the house. Says, hey there, horror nerds. One of our amazing supporters. Thank you so much, Travis Brown. Thank you for being here. McKinnon Mitchell as well. Documentarian extraordinaire is in the house. Good to see you, McKinnon. Who says, The Hollow Man. Not the kind of movie I expected, LOL. I like that the guy you think will be the hero is actually the villain, but he was just creepy in a rapey kind of way. He, he was created in a rapey kind of way. <laughs> Real problems there. But we're going to dive into that a little bit later. Um, Aaron Reese. I see Aaron Reese in the chat a lot. So, hey, hi, Aaron. Good to see you. Hi, Aaron. <laughs> okay. And there's Gavlar the Hand of Zod is in the house. Says, hey, you. Hey, you guys. Good to see you, Gavlar. Thanks so much for being here, bud. Do appreciate it. One of our amazing supporters. And uh, Rodent No Last Name is in the house. Says, Gabba Gabba. Hey, everybody. Gabba Gabba to you, good sir. Thank you so much for being here, bud. Diagnosis Horror is here. Evening, good people. Hope all is well for everyone. We are doing fantastic on our 150th episode. Thank you, Diagnosis Horror, a.k.a. Nerd Journal. Good to see you. Thanks so much for being here, bud. All right. We've also got in the house Sarcasm, another one of our amazing supporters. Says, hello, everybody. Good to see you, Sarcasm. Thanks so much for being here, bud. We do appreciate it. Love when you hang out with us. And then, of course, there's me telling everybody we're, we're going to be that there. Unfortunately, John, you know, Johnny's not with us tonight. Johnny um, had uh, other... He's extremely busy on his end. So um, it's you've got the three of us tonight. I hope that will suffice. Charlie Welch is in the house. Another one of our amazing supporters. Good to see you, Charlie. says, uh, weekend whore. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. <laughs> Thank you, Charlie Welch, the only man on the internet you never make a bet with. Good to see you, Charlie. Thanks so much for hanging. Sally Skeleton's in the house. says, yay, horror time. Good to see you, Sally. Thanks so much for being here. Same for Dib Dib is in the house. Good to see you, Dib Dib. Thank you so much for being here, bud. As uh, Joshua Lee is as well, one of our another one of our amazing supporters. Good to see you, Joshua. Um, I do hope that your pint glass should be arriving soon. You know Teespring and their delivery. So I, I checked with Jack Burton and I checked with Sarcasm. They should have they should have already received their pint glasses. Um, Jack told me he got his, and then of course yours should be on the way. It just sometimes they take forever. But uh, let me know if you have any problems with that. But thank you so much, bud. And then I see. Join us for everyone, forever and ever and ever. Absolutely. Ivy Gentry's in the house as I'm here. Good to see you, Ivy. Thanks for hanging out with us. Abby Pollins in the house. His first time here and was curious. Good to see you, Abby. Thanks so much for being here. We appreciate it. This is the other half of the content that, that we do. You, you probably know me from my personal channel, but this is the uh, the Week in Horror, the horror, film pod, uh, the horror film podcast that we do with me and my filmmaker friends. So Eugene, Aaron, Johnny, and Alex, whenever um, Alex is around, because Alex has got kids, so he's usually really, really busy. But thank you for being here, Abby. We do appreciate it. Ivy Gentry uh, says, I got four kittens yesterday. Awesome. Very cute. Ooh. Bundle of Congratulations. Cuties. 
Awesome, awesome. Claire Views in the House says, congratulations on 150. Thank you so much, Claire. Thank you for hanging out with us. We do appreciate it, especially on this special night. Chris Durham Music Channel is in the house. It says, CL in Roman, num CL in Roman numerals. I don't know what he's referring to there. Oh, 150. 150. Yeah. Yeah, yep. 150. Thank you, Chris. Do appreciate it. Said hi to Crafty. Thank you so much for hanging out with us, Crafty. We do appreciate it. Yes, wrote in a last name. That's effectively two subscribers a week. So, you know, <laughs> at, the, at this rate... At this rate, we'll be uh, I'll be fifty by the time we hit you know by the time this channel gets monetized. <laughs> yeah, that's the way it is. <laughs> uh, but eventually, slowly but surely, yeah, we win them over. We win them over one at a time. That's how that's how you do it, one at a time. Hearts and minds, hearts and minds, baby. <laughs> <laughs> hearts and minds does not mean two to the chest, one in the head. Old military joke. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Gosh of Heckfire is announced. Good to see you, Gosh of Heckfire. Uh, he says he really, really likes the uh, the new artwork. Very cool. We're very proud of it. Uh, he outdid Joshua did, outdid himself on this one. And then I see Facty's in the house. Good to see you, Facty. Thank you so much for being here. Says hi, y'all. Good to see you, Facty. Thanks for hanging out. And then of course Tony Regime, another one of our amazing supporters. Good to see you, Tony. Thanks so much for being here. And I think I caught. Oh, there's God for twenty. Good to see you, bud. Thanks for hanging out. I think I just got everybody. Fantastic. All right. Well, I do appreciate everybody being here. Awesome. So, um, yes, you're right, Tony Regime. Nothing on the show tonight could be as horrific as, as me filming in flurf mode. I apologize. <laughs> oh, you know what? I don't. I, this is not the. This is not the podcast to address this on. But. When you are out filming with your, when you got your phone and you're just out filming, duh, 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 doing the thing, right? It's much easier to control the 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 phone and keep an eye on your subject, so you can keep them framed, keep them framed when you have it vertical. Doing it landscape means that you have a bar across there, so you have to. It, it just it's just more obnoxious and difficult to adjust on the fly because if they happen to move. Then you're moving like this, and then you block your eyesight, and then you can't see them, and it's a pain in the tail. I It's just a matter of logistics. I understand that landscape is the preferred, but portrait, I don't know what... Eugene, explain... One of y'all explain this to me. What is the problem with... What is the problem with portrait mode? $6,000 worth of cameras, so I don't know why you're asking. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't have that issue. Yeah, it's, uh, well, yeah. Keeping it in one hand is his issue. Like, <laughs> less than a shoulder, Rick. I get, no, I get the going one hand on it when things are crazy because I've got sausage fingers, so I want to keep a grip on it. But yeah, now the, uh, I am disappointed that you don't get, didn't get the look of horrific shock on Chili's face as <laughs> everything went awry and the brick wall did his JL showed up in his path. <laughs> I wasn't gonna let him do it. I wasn't gonna let him. Uh, I wasn't gonna let him antagonize AJ like that. So I had to. I had to step in between. I had to be like, nope, nope. I should have said it. It would have been a, the, the funniest line ever. Hey, room for the Holy Spirit. Don't don't Bad even or, don't even. <laughs> and he's like, we don't stop. Yeah, you stop now, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the future, I will do my best to film in in landscape mode because I know that vertical. I know that vertical mode is is flurf mode. Is is the the weak the weak filmmakers. They film they film in in uh, in portrait, and I will try my best to do landscape in the future. Have, you have, have you my word. Of a selfie stick. 
I could also probably do that as well, but then I would look like... No, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say that. Because eventually I will probably end up breaking down and getting one, so... But yeah, so I will do my best to, to correct. Anyway! <laughs> but thank you everybody for hanging out with us tonight. Um, uh, I, before we jump into tonight's movies, so we have... Uh, so here, Eugene and I here from the very, very beginning, right? And Aaron, one of our newest, or our newest, our, our newest member of the crew. So here on the 150th episode, what do you think? Well, what do you think of Eugene? 150 episodes in, 150 weeks we've been doing this. This is, it's been insane because then it's like, we've covered so many movies, like so many because otherwise the first season we did like five and then we ended up going down the four uh so it's what like a couple hundred movies we've covered so far i think so yeah i mean if we because we started doing five and then we realized that that was just too much actually in, in like our first episode we did six so i know that we started before four we started we started with greater than four then we went to four because four was a nice even uh nice like, like a nice uh made for a nice episode and so if you do that like 150 times, it's 150 times four. Yeah, it's at least 600. Yeah, at least 600. We, so that means we've talked about 600 horror films, and <laughs> all ranges some some of the most iconic ones to others. Like to just others. at the bottom of the barrel and come up still alive. <laughs> it's just a miracle. <laughs> We have deep, we have deep dived we've deep dived over six hundred films, and we have uh, not only that well I mean and I would say because I, I wouldn't say review I would say we've deep dived them and we've we found interesting things to talk about every single one of them whether they were the bottom of the barrel from the butcher all the way to hereditary no nope, I ran that on the butcher no yeah I know I know but we but we but we have found oh no Road Miller says one hundred and fifty good films. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds about right. <laughs> but this has been a hell of an experience. And we hit this 150 on our way to the season finale of our third season, which will be in September. September will be the end of season three, the beginning of season four. Four fucking seasons. Four you know what? Season. We you know what? we have a bunch of we have a bunch of, we have some time. We have some time for we have to dive, dive into this. We started this thing out of like legitimately it was it was me, Eugene, and Alex. And I had this idea, inspired by my friends, be like, dude, you, you need they was like, you need to do something. I needed to get creative. So we started this bad boy when I called up Eugene, who I'd met doing, you know, working on a 40-hour film for a 48-hour film projects. He was DPing, I, I was a writer. And I was like, you know, hey, I got this idea. And you know, maybe we could do like a podcast where we talk about horror movies. Cause we see, cause we really clicked. We clicked when we were on 48 hour and I was kind of like, you know, maybe we can do this and pull this off. So then I, we needed a third person. I called the only other person I knew was available. And that was Alex. And Alex knew, knew stuff as well as I did. And, you know, it was a good variety of personalities, you know, from the, from how we, and how we approached the, and how we approached filmmaking and the genre. So I wanted to put everything together. And we started out, and it was, it was absolute crap. And we had this idea, and we was like, you know what? We were sitting here talking about it. I remember, in our early stages, in our early production me production meetings, we were talking about what this could potentially lead to. 
And we're sitting here like me, Alex, and Eugene, talking over Discord. You know, I've got my fucking, like, notes and shit. Like, a, you know, like, absolutely no, like, like not even an outline of what we were going to do. And, and we were sitting there talking about what, what could potentially come from this. That, that, that maybe this could lead to further opportunities. That maybe doing the, po- doing the podcast would a- enable us to network. And that we could get uh, in, in contact with interesting, pe- with interesting people who are in the industry. Because we, you know, we have industry guests on the show. And maybe that could open some doors. And, and then we were like, nope, nope, nope. We don't want to jinx ourselves. We don't. We pulled back. We were like, no, we don't want to do that. Because if we started like, you know, this is pie in the sky stuff. Because we, we had no idea how long it was going to We thought maybe it was going to last like a season. We didn't even know what a season was. We didn't know how long a season would be. It was like arbitrary. We hit 52 episodes like, well, I guess that's the end of season one. Let's do it again. Season two. So each season became a fucking year. Ah. Uh. So, and then, you know, we kind of got kept it in the back pocket. You know, what what could there be? You know, what, you know, what could this lead to? It's slowly but surely. Holy fucking shit, man. It, 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 it has been a, it's been a ride thus far. Anyway, I mean, it really has. It's cool because it's, like I said, meeting new people. Because meeting Aaron, meeting Johnny, um, and meeting a lot of our fans. That's like, who just kind of hopped on and just like, yeah. hey, and now they're here every week. And they're listening to our show and our fans that maybe they're not here for the live show, but they listen to all those platforms. It's just, it's cool. Like, it just, it really is. And also, on top of that, there's so many horror movies that we get to watch. And so, because a lot of times it's like, oh, well, I want to watch the ones that are good, or for my case, the ones that are extremely bad. But now it's like a, all right, now we're watching all of them. And it it's making us not only better podcasters, but better filmmakers, because now we're really right. diving into a lot of these films that otherwise we may, na- may not have dialogue. We'd be like, oh, it's a good movie, and then that's it on some of them but now we get to sit there and talk about them. we get to bounce ideas off we get to interact with people from all over the world that's what's really cool all over the world so it's it's incredible so and and i agree and i and uh my my kind of like closing thought on that was exactly what you were bringing up is like just like an, an author needs to read and read often a filmy a filmmaker needs to watch movies and watch them often, as often as they can. And I can say that um, this has made me a better writer as far as, like, you know, the for- the formula of writing film. It's improved my skills. And I was like this, like, this is how you tell a story. This is what needs to be conveyed. And I think I was pretty good beforehand, but this podcast has made me that much better. And just like you said, that... You know, us coming together as filmmakers, talking about this, it's made us better filmmakers as well. It's it's ingrained us in that we are more in touch with the industry that we work in than I think that we were beforehand. And we get that kind of refresher every single week. It's been an app. I've, I've taken so much away from just doing this. Um, like I said, it's been nothing but it, it's been an awesome ride and I've improved uh, steadily myself and the opportunities it's opened. So, but that we're, we're two veterans here who've been doing this. So now my question. Now I want to go to the. I want to go to the new guy. So what do you I mean, think? It's like 150 episodes. What are you thinking? Like if you take a new cruise through YouTube, there's not a lot of horror content, and the stuff you do see tends to be focused around stuff done in the last five to ten years at the max, and they're basically all clustering in on that algorithm about that. So do 
have a, a show because I, I think a lot of people don't realize that this this moment right here this isn't really the hard part the hard part is you know getting in the movies beforehand making notes breaking down getting ready and we don't discuss the movies too much beforehand because we want to save that for the viewers and listeners but just you know getting everything coordinated beforehand is the hardest part and that forces you to dig into some older movies some stuff that like normally if you put a gun to my head i probably wouldn't watch but uh <laughs> it just it makes you hyper aware of the genre it's like one of the greatest resources because you when you watch the quote-unquote really good movies, you do see the trends and the genres, you know, the tropes, things like that. When you watch the stuff that's not so great, you see how not to do it. I mean, instead of it being a theme, it's just a copy a lot of times, badly done. Right. So having something out that that's digging in, like it doesn't matter how old it is, it doesn't matter what rating it got, if it came out, we're going to talk about it. We might talk about how great it is, we might talk about good notes in it, the bad notes. We might have Johnny on and it's going to get trashed, but <laughs> <laughs> that's to actually fully explore the genre is something a lot of people don't do because they're so afraid of the algorithm not favoring them that they're just, you know, terrified of it. And I think it's ridiculous because the genre's got deep roots and it runs way back into the literature even before anything got set to film. And we don't even hesitate to talk about that. So to actually be part of something where we're going through them and almost nitpicking them to discuss things rather than this is a good movie, this is a bad movie, this da 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 da. I think, you know, it's it's a good learning experience, and it's been mostly fun. There was the witchcraft series. You're not going to let me live that down, are you? <laughs> no, especially not because, like, it's what, week, or no, not even week two. Technically, I think it was week one. I had been a sub, but an unofficial member. I signed on for week one. You're like, by the way, we're doing witchcraft. And I'm like, nobody else was doing this. That's why you recruited exactly. me. Exactly. That's the point. It's like, you need to expand the panel because I'm not touching this shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant stuff. Brilliant stuff. It, it, it's it's really interesting you bring that up because we do talk about everything. So a lot of these other YouTube channels, they'll talk about one or two movies. And because they're going for the views, they talk about the big ones. So it's always the big franchises. The when you look at the other channels, um, you know things where they're doing like kill counts and reviews and recaps. It is the big ones because they want the views. Obviously, something that's going to be uh, something that's, that's going to be like Hellraiser is going to get more views than something that's like Track of the Movies or something that's really <laughs> something that's really uh, obscure. I will always get back to that one. Um, something that's real obscure. But the thing about this great about this channel is if it's a horror film, regardless of how niche, how small, how anything, if it was put on Prime, if it's on DVD or release in theaters, we're going to talk about it at some point. And I know there's going to be somebody out there who's going to be excited when they're like, I didn't think anybody ever heard of this movie, and they're talking about it. So we will eventually get to your movie if we haven't gotten to it already. Absolutely, there's still, like I said, we're we're like we're coming up on the end of season three. Six hundred plus episodes in the bag, over thirty bloodbath debates where we put horror icons against one another. Um, 
you know, and of course, all the after darks we've done, we played trivia, and we've we've talked to people who work in the industry, and you know, and and then trying uh, kicking off our front row, the weekend horror front row, which has been a bit problematic trying to get that off. But we, I mean, it's scheduling is very very difficult, especially these days. What I found is that it, it's making it very hard. But we're gonna get there. Um, so much, you know, so much stuff that we that we've done, and uh, an, an an amazing amount of things that are that are on the way. You know, and it's all because of of y'all, everyone in the audience uh, who's been here, who has hung out with us. Because, you know, like I said, like I've always said from the very beginning, the horror fandom, the horror genre fandom is small, but it's tightly knit. And they are they are rabid when it comes to the movies that they love. And there is I don't think there's a fandom out there that I am more appreciative of that I that I enjoy being a part of more than the than horror the horror genre i just uh, you know y'all are just fucking amazing yeah absolutely amazing every single one of y'all so this has been an, uh, a wild fucking ride 150 episodes you know damn yeah <laughs> but you know <sighs> what they're here for us to talk about horror films yes they are Yes, they are. Yeah. <laughs> We're here to talk about some more films. Before we dive into there, let me see here. I think we had some, uh, a couple new people popping in. I see iHeart Dogs in the house. Good to see iHeart Dogs. Thank you so much for being here. Elizabeth Sylvester as well. One of our amazing, another one of our amazing supporters. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Do appreciate it. And I think uh, it was just those two. Oh, and Donnie does that. There he is. Hey, Donnie. Good to see you. Thanks so much for being here, bud. We do appreciate it. All right. Oh, this iHeart Dogs second live. Wednesdays are busy. We get that absolutely, and thank you for for popping in. Uh, we do appreciate it. Yeah, it's amazing. So thank you all. It's amazing. but yes, like Eugene said, we got some fucking movies to dive into tonight, and I, honestly, I think we have some good ones. I think I, I enjoyed these ones. I did. This just me. Maybe it's just me. <laughs> Our first movie is. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Jay. What do we got first? All right, for the first movie, we're oh shit. There's N A N A. He just popped in. Good to see you, NANA. Thank you so much for being here, bud. Another one of one of our longest supporters. Thank you so much for being here, bud. We do appreciate it. Thank you, NANA. So for our first movie tonight, we're going. Uh, I was going to say something funny there, but I, my mind just went blank. Uh, I I got to I got to stop trying to be funny. So <laughs> we're going back to the '90s. Released August second, nineteen ninety one. We have Body Parts. Let's check out this trailer. <laughs> Yes, Body Parts. So, directed by Eric Red and screenplay by Eric Red and Norman Snyder, based on choice cuts by Pierre Boulot and Thomas Narjak, uh, starring Jeff Fahey and a, uh, well, that's not very helpful, starring Jeff Fahey, Brad, the legendary Brad Dourif, Kim Delaney, Zakes Mokay, Lindsay Duncan, Paul Ben Victor, Peter Mernick, and Peter McNeil. So, uh, the film ostensibly follows uh, psycho uh, psychologist Bill Cruikshank, played by Jeff Fahey, who winds up, as you saw, in a horrific car accident in which he loses his arm, but is given a revolutionary surgery where he has transplanted another arm that works perfectly and has, you know, with no limitations. And it turns out that the arm came from a convicted serial killer, actually, yeah, convicted serial killer and all around just you know, generally bad person, um, who want, who, uh, is actually alive and wants his limbs back. So from not only him, but the other individuals who got his legs and got his, got his other arm. So it's, uh, 
wild, uh, wild and crazy stuff. And I have to admit, I, I, well, that sequence when he handcuffs his hand, handcuffs his hand, and they're driving together, in, like in parallel. I always thought this is one of my favorite scenes in this movie, because that, you know, as far as stunt work goes, that's a pretty ballsy scene. To do that, and you know, especially with the with the oncoming uh, tractor trailer, the oncoming eighteen uh, wheelers, and then the uh, the concrete dividers and stuff, I was like, so, uh, I always loved that scene from a from a filmmaking logistics standpoint. It had to be a nightmare, but it looked like it was a lot of fun. So, but uh, otherwise, a a kind of a twist on the Frankenstein story, as you know, and produced by Frank Mancuso Jr., um, who people re- recognize from the Friday the Thirteenth series. Well, that whole, I might have appreciated the car scene more if it wasn't the point at which I went, what the fuck? Because <laughs> 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 they had been developing this somewhat subtle plot about where is evil? Is it in the mind? Mm-hmm. Is it in the body and everything? And all of a sudden there's Frankenstein in a fucking car trying to drag the guy out. In the previous scene, he had ripped off the other guy's limb like it was a chicken wing. It, he's hanging out the window, and instead of having to go to extreme lengths, he just reaches out and just like, that's mine again, and it comes off. But, um... You just right yoink that shit, just like, yeah, that's mine. <laughs> they, they just took it in a direction where they, you know, they had, uh... Some nice development. They had a lot of possibilities, and then they just... They went for the, uh, I don't even want to say visceral, just the blood and gore angle and the shock of the standoff at the end and all that. And this whole idea of where does evil live just went to hell, straight to hell. It was forgotten for the sake of, you know, some, like you said, some stunts. Good stunts, yeah. Mm-hmm. Personally, I would have punched the guy's head off because if he's got a <laughs> neck cast on and you hit him in the skull, it's going to fuck him up. But, uh,. <laughs> Yeah, they just, they all of a sudden delve into, their jump into this little conspiracy mode where they're discussing, you know, putting someone back together and bringing them back to life. And even that got kind of ignored because it's like, well, he's suddenly got the psychic connection with this guy, but we don't get to explore it because he blows him away with a fucking shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the, uh, yeah, critics weren't too happy with it either. It, it started off really well, had some really good potential, and I'm just, like, watching the whole thing. I'm like, poor Jeff Faye, he's such a good actor. And first lawnmower man, and then this, and it's like, <laughs> whose God did he piss off? <laughs> oh, well, I think he went, to, he went to lawnmower man after this one, didn't he? Did he? I thought it was before. I'd have to look it up. I yeah, just know that that was kind of lawnmower man was his breakout. Oh, Lawnmower yes. Man! Wow. So agent, that man. was that was one thing that struck me is that the film starts out starts off so strong, and as far as this, as far as the script goes, I thought it was really really I thought it was very very compelling. It was this nice kind of it was almost like this that you had two like you kind of like had two thirds of a movie where your first act and your second act are are pretty solid, but then they just they didn't know really know how to end it with that because they they breach into these philosophical concepts. Which I thought were really, really solid. Uh, they tread in territory that Mary Shelley did when she wrote the modern Prometheus, and I like that it was just kind of this modernization take. It was you know science run amok. This doctor who doesn't give a shit just wants to you know revolutionize medicine, and I get that uh, that that was a good strong foundation for their storyline. But then all of a sudden you get about uh, I'm gonna say halfway through I'm gonna say halfway through the second uh, the second act, and all of a sudden it's just 
it's just a gore. F- it's just it's just gory. It's just a gore fest, violence fest, stunt fest, action fest. And it was like, okay, so we we breached these things. Now we have all these really cool concepts that we didn't touch because now it's like, fuck that American man going to do violence to you know to do what I have to do, which is such a goddamn waste for what they began for what they started with. And I and it was a shame because I went back and checked out the short story. And the short story took these concepts to uh, to the conclusion. And because then, because then, then it slightly touches into the lingering after effects of him having that connection, and then wondering if there was some kind of imprint between the two of them because he he possessed his because he still has his arm, but the guy's dead. Does a part of him still live on? And and it actually kind of like went into this and left it a little kind of there's some ambiguity there. This one they're just like fuck that everything's great. I killed everybody and I'm getting off scot free and it's all fantastic. So I was just, I was bummed, and it seemed like just a, a, a sadly wasted opportunity, which was weird because the 90s were, were a, a point for kind of aggressive storytelling, and it was either big hard action or really kind of interesting movies because, you know, they were trying to do new stuff, and unfortunately it just, uh, this one just didn't pan out. Yeah, definitely had some real kind of some missed opportunities here because it would have liked to dive more into because it's it's interesting. It's the it comes down to the argument of the broom, the uh, provo- ah, if I can speak, the argument of the broom. So basically, the argument is, is this: you take a broom, right, and all of a sudden the handle breaks. You buy a new handle; it is still the same broom. So some people go, oh, yeah, it's still the same broom. Uh, it just has a new handle on it. Well, kids, well, if you take the bristles, and then a month later, the bristles get worn off, and so then you buy a new part of the bristles. So you put the new bristles, and you put it on the broom handle, the broom handle, the new broom handle. It is still technically the same broom. And you start getting to the philosophical part of some of people will go, yes, it's still the same, despite the fact that it's all new parts, because the essence is still the same. In your mind, it's still the same broom. But you also have the argument of, no, it's a new. You have a new handle. You have a new bristles. It's a brand new broom, despite the fact that you yeah. bought it in pieces. So that's always an argument that you can kind of dive into. That's really interesting, and I wish they explored that a little more. That sometimes gore. I'm a fan of gore. I like gore. I make gore. I've done some great gore, um, mm-hmm. like scenes and stuff. But sometimes it's a cop out. Like sometimes right, it is. Right. Just like, well, let's just have well, we got nothing, so let's just have a bunch of boom exploding. So he comes in with a shotgun, and boom, doctor gets a shotgun in the head, and then you shoot up all the body, and it's just kind of like a ah, this. If you're gonna go gore, then you can make that a main focal point in your film, and that's fine. There are plenty of films that do that excellent, but if you're gonna go theoretical and you're gonna dive into philosophy, keep it consistent throughout your film. Yeah, it's, it's, they, yeah. Go ahead. When go they ahead. were at the, as I say, when they were at the bar, they had a prime, prime, you know, plot line to follow there that was stuck with it because the two guys he's with, the one that got the legs, the one that got the other arm, are just like go with it. And at that point, I thought they're they're out murdering people, and I'm like, well, guess what? He just joined a killers club. Like, this could get interesting. And then they just completely divert, and I was like, damn, that was such an opportunity. Not to mention, not to mention the three actors that you have there. I mean, three top-notch character actors: Brad Dourif, Jeff Fahey, and uh, I don't, I don't want to uh, miss the other dude's name. Um, was that? I think that was that was that was John Walsh. I think is who that was. 
But uh, the three of them together, I, I loved the bar scene. And then, the, you know, the two guys kind of like, you know, because they were already kind of dark in, in and of themselves. One was a, one was a, a, a veteran who had lost his legs and was already cynical and already dark. And the other one was a, was an artist who was had pretty much been shit on his luck his entire career until he had the surgery. And then all of a sudden these things get, get awakened inside of him. And the, the, you know, they're embracing the newfound kind of uh, freedom that they've gotten and the new the new ability that they have. And then you know, turn around and you have this third one to come into the fold. And then the epic the, the fight scene that takes place after that where it's kind of like their limbs kind of like working on their own and stuff. I, it was intriguing and I liked where they were going with that. And then they just dumped the script. And I think it was because when you have something of this nature a film like this and well I will I will give this some really some decent practical effects like I could have done without the the Brad Dourif looking dummy because it was extremely obvious when it came out the window and land you know and had the plot effect of landing on the cop car right as the right as the event takes place but I really enjoyed the practical effects and you know in that you got that killer kind of money shot scene where you've got the the the, the body parts all like strung up in the uh, in the kind of like gallery thing where they're all still alive because they're all like hooked up and wired up and everything and they're all like kind of wiggling around yeah, and shit you can see them kind of moving and they're right. like suspended from that ceiling thing from like chains or, and th- or so i mean but i think that was that because you know i think mancuso who probably was the driving force because usually on his projects he is the driving force behind a lot of the decisions that get made as we've seen you know with a lot of the friday the 13th movies the the move the Friday the Thirteenth films went in the direction they did because of Mancuso, in spite of what everybody else was saying. Mancuso wanted to go take it in one direction. Friday the Thirteenth the series, which is what's weird because Mancuso produced this and he produced Friday the Thirteenth the series, and Friday the Thirteenth the series never had a problem with big philosophical questions. Every single episode was a philosophical or a moral or an ethical conundrum that put it back on the viewer. To make their own decisions. That's why I love that series so much. And Mancuso was the driving force behind that. He's the one who made it successful by naming it Friday the 13th the series. Because he knew that the other name just would, wouldn't have worked. So, and, but he he was the driving force behind that. He should, I know he was behind this. And yet, in the end, they succumbed to it. Instead of like taking it in the direction they wanted to. Maybe because it was just like, test audiences thought it was too slow. I didn't, you know, it was like, wow, we're, we're leading up to this. But... Now it's like, it's like, but if it, 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 maybe it just wasn't that much of a, you know, uh, an explosive ending is what they needed. If it ends on kind of an ambiguous, kind of like atmospheric, slow note, the movie just kind of, maybe just people just didn't dig it. So they leaned into the body horror that Cronenberg was known for. That, you know, like, you know, the, the, we got body parts everywhere. Let's just lean into that and you know, go for the visual appeal, you know, and unfortunately sacrifice like all of this great setup and all this buildup. And that kind of leads you to, leads to ask is that the film didn't do great, but it's kind of a cult favorite, body horror. The reason, and they, they felt compelled to do this, to lean to the body horror to make this movie make money. The enduring appeal of body horror, it doesn't matter who's doing it, because there's many, many body horror films out there where people get mutated or people have shit coming out of them, or whether you're Cronenberg, you're doing Videodrome or The Fly or whatever. Or, you know, Clive Barker and the stuff that he does. Body horror. The enduring appeal of this. What is our draw to this little subgenre of horror? Well, I, I wanted to go, I wanted to hit a point first real quick before diving yeah. into that. Because you talked about in terms of doing maybe an atmospheric horror. And 
atmospheric horror wasn't really around yet. And maybe maybe somebody reintroduces it or tries it today. Of course, atmospheric horror being the type where it's more atmospheric, it's more tense. So you're thinking of films like The Witch, Hereditary, so forth and so forth, that really set up this kind of this creepy atmospheric and dive more into philosophical parts. Um, that that genre ha hasn't really been established yet. The genre is still about 15 years away, 15, 20 years away. Right. So having that idea, even if they tried to test it, probably wouldn't test well yet. So they're kind of like, well, obviously that's a route they couldn't go, so they end up going to the route that they did, and maybe it lost out. So maybe this is something that maybe could be remade today since atmosphere horror is a thing now but going into and going into body horror body horror is always a really interesting aspect because one of the things is you're dealing with yourself and you're dealing with your own body and it's something it's something interesting when that you lose control of that so when you look at films like district nine or the fly it's Yourself. Oh, just a dime, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. it's yourself, and it's something that you can't control because in a lot of horror films, you always have an external threat. So it's like, okay, well, as long as you can run, you can fight, you can see, you can, you have, you, you have, I can control this. You may lose against the villain, but you can control your body versus like, it's something you're fighting inside that you can't control. So when in District Nine, where he's turning into he's turning into like a mutated version of the aliens, and there's nothing he can do about it, and he's yeah. trying, but there's nothing he can do. It's just a slow, slow takeover. Or you get somebody take a movie like, for example, Teeth, where you're born with a certain <laughs> condition. Yeah, yeah, <coughs> and adjusting to that so that's that's always been the appeal of body horror because it tests your humanity when you take your body away from you how do you still maintain your humanity and some people are able to and some people are they dive into and become the creature so that's what uh, that's always been a, an appeal of body horror is it tests your humanity when your body is taken away from you yeah and that's so this is all a thing, and I've talked to my wife about this. I used to really enjoy body horror. I'm okay with it now. If it's got a good plot that's backing it, I'm on board especially. But the odd thing is, ever since I became, because I'm partially disabled, like I'm unable to work, I've got issues from prey disease or numerous, I have back problems and stuff, I don't enjoy it as much anymore because horror, it tends to be hyperbole and we use it to explore the things we fear, but... It when you start kind of living, obviously I've not got a mutated killer arm. That'd be way fucking cool. <laughs> but when you start living in a state where you're constantly fighting your body and it's fighting you back and stuff, it becomes less enjoyable. But for most people, it's a great way to explore that concept because your body, like, how do they put it? You're really just, if you think about it, you're not a body. We experience things as our body, but you're a brain and a meat suit. And a, a meat mech is the way they put it, where you're really just your brain. Everything else is an attachment to help it execute the things it wants to execute. So body horror is a great way to explore that and to kind of, you know, 
dis- decide, like just like he was talking about, you take away pieces of something or assemble it. The philosophical arm uh, argument is the ship of Theseus, where yes. if you yeah. replace it board by board ma- and replace the mast cell, plus everything, it is still the same ship. Um, and it's it's a Buddhist argument too about they. Some people will use a car as an example. At what point, and when you start taking away pieces, is it not a car? Is it the engine? Is it turning into mission? Um, so it's a it's a good way to explore what makes a person a person. Is it your body? Is it your mind? Is it a combination thereof? And like he said, you know, when you start undergoing the weight of these changes, how do you respond? Because in the terms of movies like this one, it's do you become evil because you've got an evil arm? In terms of real life, it's can you overcome what you're enduring? And not only can you overcome it, but can can you become better by it? And it's something that I deal with every day. So it's not you would think I would enjoy it more on screen, but tend to use movies as escapism. That's just where my outlet. So it's it's not as fun. That and I'm like watching the scene where he starts to make love to his wife and he's using the new right arm and I'm like, how does he feel about a stranger finger banging his wife? <laughs> <laughs> I actually almost had that. I was kind of like that that thought. She was kind of like, uh, I that was a little that was a little weird. It, it, but I mean, but that's what body horror is, uh, you know is supposed to do. It, it you know whether you're looking at and someone brought you know, I brought a video drone. And just the loss of control over one's but where where someone else has control of your body and someone else is dictating what your body can do. And I know that that sounds very, very much like we are treading upon a, something that's very topical at the moment. And I, I, you know, it's just kind of the way it susses out. But, you know, the loss of autonomy, whether it's from an external force or whether it's because your body turning against you or, you know, whether you, whatever happens... Or, you know, you, you do it to yourself, like, you know, the brundle fly or, you know, whatever. I've always found it, I've, I've always found it intriguing. The loss of my, like, like I'm, gr- I'm grotesquely compelled to watch body horror. You know, no matter what form it takes. Whether it's, like, super gross. The, the new Cronenberg film, uh, Crimes of the Future. I don't know if you've seen it yet. Mm-hmm. So... You'll stomach your way through it. It's it's a squirmer. I'll give you this. Cronenberg has lost none of his uh, of uh, none of his uh, tra- I say velocity or trajectory. <laughs> you know, he, age has still, not mellowed him. It is not. He. I mean, in fact, it, it, if I say it's made him more sublime, it, he hits it on all cylinders, and he knows really how to do it now. So. Um, it's, it's, you know, the subgenre is for some people and not for some people. What is a shame is that it's definitely a visual appeal and that people who want to see that taking place and want to see the kind of experience and internalize the, the protagonist's experience as he's going through this, as he's slowly losing control of both his, of his body and, uh, and slowly his mind. Um, unfortunately, just with body parts... Despite some deft, I would say some deft direction. You know, I mean, there were some good, there were some good choices here, and some excellent action pieces. I really enjoyed it, and good acting across the board. There, there wasn't anybody that dropped the ball here. This was all in the storyline. This is all in writing, and all in having the balls to take the story that you wanted to the finish line. Don't start in one place and then end up in a completely different stadium by the end of your movie because that's when you're that's when you you build into this into into you build something up and then all of a sudden 
you bait and switch them at the end say, nope, it's going to be this kind of movie. And it's so jarring to the audience. And it was jarring to me, even though I'd, I'd seen this years ago. I was like, oh, man, that is really fucking disjointed. Just like cut the wheel off and we're just going to go in this other direction over here because that's the shit that fucking sells. This is the kind of, this is the lack of bravery that uh, ultimately I think hurts the, like hurts not only the genre, but filmmaking, filmmaking in general. I know that it's a risk, but you have to be willing to take it, especially don't bait and switch people. That just is fucking deceptive. Yeah, it's the, you'll hear from time to time, you got to commit. Right. Like, yeah, that, that's the thing. If you got something coming. You got something coming at you. You got. Are you trying to execute something? You got to commit. And a lot of times, people are so afraid of making a mistake, and they hesitate. And just the hesitation alone is a bad outcome. Versus, uh, one of one of my favorite sayings is, "It's better to make an okay decision at the right time than the right decision too late." Right. And it's like, if you're going to commit to it, just commit. And if it doesn't work, you just own up to it. And there are plenty of directors who have been like, yep, I went full. I, I was actually reading an article earlier today from um, uh, T. Miller, the director of uh, Deadpool, because he directed Terminator Dark Fate, which bombed in box office. I mean, it mm. was a great movie. But he was talking about, it's like, you know, I went, he went 100% on what he wanted to do with a little bit of pushback from James Cameron, but he went a hundred percent of what he wanted to do. It didn't work out, but it's like, yeah, at least he tried. So, it, so for those filmmakers out there commit, if it doesn't work, then it just doesn't work, but at least commit to what you're trying to do. Because mm. if you don't commit, it's guaranteed not to work. Right. Oh. So, but I actually, I want to ask the audience, oh. what is your favorite body horror? <laughs> there's a lot of them out there people have already been talking about human centipede but uh or human centipede too but let us know what your favorite body horror film is definitely i see we got some new people up uh, that popped into the chat um i thought i saw them real quick i saw jinju is in the house good to see you jinju uh and h jasper e another one of our amazing supporters thanks so much for being here bud and Oh, yo, yeah, there's that Joshua Lee. Oh, there's that uh, that Human Centipede love. Absolutely. Um, let me see. Sarcasm's Brad Dourif made this film creepy. Without him, it would have been a dark comedy. Brad Dourif does lend an air of creepiness to whatever he does. And it was weird because uh, to hear him in this movie and then the primary character, uh, what was it? What was it? Um, the bad guy that they got the uh that they got the 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 bad guy that they got the limbs from's name was Charlie. He was a serial killer who went by Charles Fletcher. And uh Brad Dourif played Charles Lee Ray who was a serial killer in the child's play uh, films. So <laughs> <laughs> But he does yeah. often you know, he do what? He's like from everything I've heard he's the nicest guy in person but in movies they're just like Congratulations, you're playing a murderer again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, lots of love in there. Let me see what we got here. Uh, uh, let's see. Angel Rivera. Good to see Angel Rivera. Says Scanners. Excellent. Tony Regimes, like the original Frankenstein. Fantastic. Ivy Gentry says Evil Dead. Uh, God for 20 says The Fly. Oh, and the Jordan is in the house. Good to see And the Jordan says Anyone mentioned Society? Ah, yes, Brian Yuzna. Society was a rough one. <laughs> <laughs> wrote another name says human centipede four hands across america oh, <laughs> no 
Oh, woof. And, of course, Travis Brown's is the Fly remake. The uh, Yeah, Fly remake with Jeff Goldblum. Good stuff. Ooh, Sir Chasm hit one that's close to my heart. D. Snyder's Strangeland. Fucking A. Fucking A. Boy. And uh, I would like to bring up Hellraiser as well, because Hellraiser is definitely a body horror. Uh, I like Uzumaki. It's a spiral. That's a... Oh, Spiral. Nice. Crazy movie. <laughs> oh, nice. Very good. Very good. All right. So, um, yes. So definitely let us know what your favorite body horror is down in the comments below and or at weekendhorrorgmail.com. Uh, Aaron, you've got our next one. All right. Next up, we've got from August 4th, 2000, Hollow Man. Need some CGI madness here. <laughs> All right, so start uh, start. Ugh. Directed by Paul Verhoeven, <laughs> written by Gary Scott Thompson and Andrew W. Marlowe, starring Joey Slotnick, Greg Grunberg, Ken Dickens, Josh Brolin, Elizabeth Shue, and Kevin Bacon. And basically, this is a movie about a scientist who injects his own invisibility formula and then turns into the guy that was rejected from Revenge of the Nerds for being too graphic and voyeuristic. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just basically turned mad and evil on everybody. Uh, and of course, it's Kevin Bacon. Because <laughs> that's what he does. <laughs> Kevin Bacon being Kevin Bacon. Yeah. I have to admit, so obviously this film came out. It came out in two thousand, and uh, still, and I'm going back and watching it now. The film holds up. the 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 green screen magic that they pulled off in this one, especially you know twenty two years ago, uh, was just is just goddamn impressive. I you know knowing what I know now, how you know, I saw this in theaters when it came out, and it's just like holy shit, how they pulled that. I mean, going back and watching it now, it's like going back and watching Jurassic Park. It's really fucking impressive. And I didn't see anywhere where there were slips or any screw-ups or anything. I was like, everything they did was meticulously thought out. Just maximum green screen. It was, the the uh, the, the whole process was amazing. Yeah, so yeah. they... Yeah, so... Go ahead, Eugene. <laughs> one of the things is, you're right, that this film really, really, really does hold up very well. And the thing is, is that the... So the visual effects are the basically in charge of the visual effects artist is he actually won an Academy Award for Gladiator. So you're already looking at that level of visual effects on top of it. And they were very, very meticulous on how they wanted to go about it. So basically the way they went about it is, is they shot every scene twice. So they did once with Kevin Bacon in it and then once without it and in the film industry they call it a they call it a plate and so a plate is like if you shoot a background without the actor in there and you can even have the other actors interacting with stuff you get this clean plate on it and then they would shoot it with kevin bacon and overlap the two so that way they can get kevin the effects of kevin bacon being in the room and they will digitally remove him and then what they ended up doing was they used a motion capture camera so not just like a regular hey we're going to use a regular cinema camera a camera from motion capturing that they use for example like in video games like we look at like the uh the game mortal kombat the first one which lied on motion <clears throat> capture stuff so you're already using a motion capture camera specifically designed 
for taking that digital image, you shoot every scene twice. So you get what that clean plate is versus the one with Kevin Bacon. And then Kevin Bacon wore various colored latex suits for things when he, for things such as like the water, the smoke, yeah. <laughs> how they interacted with him. And so that way you can get some of it. And once again, going in with that route. So basically they knew that they could not skimp out on the invisible effects that was exactly what was going to sell this film you get some of the best people in the industry to do it and you that's why the effects still hold up today when they're pouring where they're sitting there pouring the latex on him how good that looks right on it i mean they, that those are effects that are very hard to achieve and make look good today let alone a film that came out 20 years ago so they really put a lot of thought into it. They really put a lot of work into it, and that's why it holds up. And he wore green screen. There was the suit, and then there was also uh, his mouth. Like he had a he had a green plate that he had that he wore in his mouth as well too. So it was it was every inch of him had to be uh, covered up in order to pull that off. And then of course, I, I mean, it was wild uh, what he went through in order to make this one happen. And not to mention there were different coloring techniques. Because it's not only the you know what they did to do the water, what they did to do the smoke effect with the you know, when the when he was in the pool, and then of course um, when the blood was thrown on him at the very end uh, when he's fighting against Kim Dickens, Kim Dickens you know, chucks the blood bag at him and get to get that effect. So really, really cool stuff that they did throughout. Yeah, really did. And, I mean, that's a that's a, that's why when you're looking at your visual effects and you're you're already going into a film that's going to be heavily visual effects driven put that time and effort into it because the thing is this good well thought out visual effects hold up when you look at films like terminator 2 you look at jurassic park those are films despite as technology gets better as tvs movies get better we're watching things at 4k now and this ultra 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 high res at jurassic park still holds up hollow man holds up terminator 2 still holds up because they put that time and effort into your effects do it the right way not that it doesn't necessarily have to be the cheapest way, but do it the right way and test it out so your film holds up because we all can recognize cheap effects. And we honestly, we still see it in movies today where right. effects are still look cheap. So put the time and effort into it if that's the route you're going to go. Well, they had a guy that actually sat down because the one that I think they don't, people don't realize took the most time was when pieces of him start to appear or disappear and they've got no skin and then no muscle and the intestine the bone everything they had a guy that sat down and did a 3d model using the newest technology so that they could take and just peel it back layer by layer section by section um on him so i can only imagine how many hours it took to lay out an entire body you know perfectly internally anatomically correct especially with an anatomically anatomically correct kevin bacon because yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, good old thermal vision <laughs> penis Kevin Bacon there. Got, like, well, got... respectable. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It's like the guy who had to CG animate Kevin Penis, uh, Kevin Penis, Kevin Bacon's penis. But otherwise, I thought it was fantastic. The the really and what really uh, not to mention that the special effects were were on point. Not just for Kevin Bacon, but also for the gorilla because they had an invisible gorilla in there as well. It was a person in a gorilla suit that I thought was was quite well done. 
as far as like people in gorilla suits. But they had to do the exact same thing with the gorilla because at one point the gorilla is is invisible. So they got through the whole process with the gorilla that they go through with uh, Kevin Bacon. Not to mention, I thought it was pretty cool because it's a gorilla suit, but they needed it to to show up on thermals. So to do the thermal imaging, they needed the so they would actually in between takes they would bring in. Uh, like a, a group of people that had hair dryers that would then hair dry the gorilla suit to get its temperature up so it would actually show up on a thermal imager. And so they had to keep doing that to keep the, to make the gorilla look hot, which means Paul Verhaven actually went to the lengths of actually studying and figuring and finding out what a gorilla looks like in a thermal imager so they'd know where to heat the gorilla up to make it look like it was legitimately there on screen. That's the level of dedication. But then again, this is Paul Verhoeven. This is uh, or Paul Verhoeven. This is uh, Robocop director. So the guy's you know he knows how to shoot a film, and if he and he he's always been at the forefront of doing really cool sci-fi shit. So I really th- I thoroughly love this one. But something he cool he did here that I thought lent itself really interesting to the story. So this is kind of a um, a retelling of the the Invisible Man. And we got another one uh, with the Elizabeth Moss one that came out uh, came out a couple years ago, which also was an amazing fucking movie. That one just stellar so effects, effects and acting wise. But this one I thought was interesting because it did something that the original Invisible Man really didn't do, but it used a technique that was used in Silence of the Lambs, and that was and in uh, I've seen it in some other films where voyeuristic filmmaking is where is what's at the forefront of this, and that is putting the audience in the perspective of either the hero or the villain. Ostensibly, in this one, it's in the it's in the villain's shoes by making Kevin Bacon invisible. And Verhoeven uh, Verhoeven saw this uh, from the get go. Is that with him invisible, then we can put the camera where he is. So we are putting the audience in Kevin Bacon's shoes, in the Invisible Man's shoes, where in, in Sebastian's shoes, where then we are then with him on his journey from from you know mild pranks. You know I'm kind of a dick, and you know there's like this is going to be fun. You know to fuck around with people being invisible, to straight up rape and murder. You know to just full blown just psychopathic crazy. So we're with him the entire way. So all the times he's invisible. That's the audience in that in that seat, and I think that was what really kind of sold this. Not to mention that uh, they were really smart in having in several look in several scenes having the actors who were working across from Kevin Bacon looking directly into the camera, which is something that was done to great effect on Silence of the Lambs with uh, Hannibal Lecter looking directly into the camera or Jodie Foster looking directly into the camera, so that we get the effect that they're talking to us, that we're we're embedded in the story, which made the fact that this is an invisible guy. There's no one to see, but, you know, really made it, really up the ick factor and the creep factor. Uh, the same kind of effect that worked really well in the in the Maniac remake with Elijah Wood, putting us in the in the shoes of the killer. And I thought that that, that was a, an excellent selling point, but almost secondary to the effects, but just as important as far as storytelling goes. And it takes a director like uh, Verhoeven to recognize we can't, it can't all be effects, because we saw that Hollow Man too. Hollow Man 2, the sequel, was a fucking dud. You know, Christian Slater. I mean, I, I love Christian Slater, but come on, man. You, you gotta do something. Do something other than mm-hmm. Mr. Robot. But no, when it... <laughs> <laughs> so, they went all effects on that one with no real 
no paying attention to the acting or the storyline or try, try, trying to like really get the uh, the audience involved. This one really, really did, which is why another reason why I think it really holds up because that's an important aspect. Something one of those little small nuances you don't want to forget about. Hey, that's a, to me, that's the only part of it that didn't age well was the kind of creep he was because now we're a lot more aware of, you know, how people are treated in the workplace and being overly sexual and stuff. And that at the beginning, they kind of wanted, they didn't want him to be unrealistic where he wasn't a creep and everything. But now it's just like, that guy's an HR nightmare. Like the lawsuit <laughs> would have happened months ago. His research would have never gotten to the ape stage because he would have been in court the entire damn time. But, uh, <laughs> beyond that, they did do a good job of, you know, kind of transitioning. And they explained it when they were dealing with the gorilla is the fact that it causes degradation. So you're stuck questioning, is he just a bastard that now he's got this chance is going to do this terrible stuff? Or is he slipping into madness because it's degrading his brain? Which is it? And at a certain point, you're like, even if they bring him back, is he still going to be a son of a bitch? Um, but it, yeah, it's it's really. I mean, that stuff's gone gone all the way back to uh, what was it, Peeping Tom, the start of the slasher era. Right. Is really getting into the killer's point of view, and it's it's fun because yeah, we are all sometimes you root for the murder. I'm sorry, but you did. <laughs> <laughs> So Angel Rivera says whoever cast Kevin Bacon for this movie knew what they were doing because Kevin because Bacon makes everything better. Yes, he does. <laughs> Kevin Bacon is amazing. Even even that crap fest um, that was him and Amanda Seyfried, uh, which is you know, which was a short story that was expanded out to a feature like film, which never should have happened. Even he made that better. That if it had been anybody else but Kevin Bacon, that would have been a, a fucking shit fucking film. But uh, he made that one strong. I can't even remember the fucking name of it. It escapes you me. You should have left. You should have left. That was it. Okay, yeah. So even that do. one, I was kind of like, you know, he made that better just because Kevin Bacon is is amazing. Kevin Bacon is, is awesome. Um, and Rodan the Last Name says, there's an analogy here to people who are anonymous on the internet that their behavior changes because... You know, they're sensibly, they're disassociated from their targets. And so being, like he says, you'd be surprised, you know, uh, was it you could be surprised what you can live with when you don't have to look at yourself in the mirror anymore. And I, I love that. And yeah, it's a combination of kind of like Orwellian, absolute power corrupts absolutely, or, you know, what, you know, was he like, that? is it just, oh, you know, it didn't change him, it just brought out who he was originally so it's, 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 you, you start to think about what would happen what would people do if you didn't have to face the consequences of it like what would you do if you could do whatever because at this point and let's say you're invisible and so no surveillance no ct no or cttv nothing to, to can pick up so you can basically go and you can attack whoever you want you can kill you want you can walk into the bank and you can rob it you can do all this other kind of stuff what would you what would you do what would people do would you use it for good would you use it for bad there's arguments for both or you will you flip-flop back and forth so you take that those consequences out what are people truly capable of? Right, and that's what—that's uh, yeah, that's really deep dive. What, what, would, what would what would you do, Eugene? Oh well, I mean, first of all, uh, definitely banks. 
Oh, hey. <laughs> I got expensive cameras to buy, so I would be so happy if Bank of America or Capital One would cover that. What about you, Aaron? I'd probably go stand out somewhere naked in public, do the helicopter, see what, uh, <laughs> what, what people got on their faces. Blah, 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 blah. Um, just like, how do you know? <laughs> I would definitely, okay, I don't know, I would definitely fuck with people. I would absolutely 100% fuck with people. I would fuck with people, especially fuck with people who believed in ghosts, who believed in, like, supernatural shit. I would just, I would go, I, just, I would just make their lives hell. It would just be, it would be hilarious. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I definitely would fuck with people. Uh Oh, but yeah, I really, really enjoyed this one, um, and it still holds up today, which I was pleasantly surprised to see. There's, they never dropped the ball once. The, the effects are on point. The acting's on point. This is a good, creepy Kevin Bacon villain um, film, and it's kind of cool to go back and see, you know, because, you know, when they made this movie, they weren't who they are today. So it's cool to see, you know, Thanos playing second fiddle to Kevin Bacon. It's fun to see... Uh, it's good. You know, Josh Brolin was in this. Yeah, uh, but it's fun. It's fun to kind of uh, you say, "Wow!" You know, to go back into just twenty two years ago, uh, what these uh, what these guys were up to. But it's a lot of fun. It's a good movie, and uh, one of the one of the better Invisible Man films. I mean, that, that's why Paul Verhoeven. He's one of my favorite directors. When you have the the people have like the A tier directors and then the B tiers and so forth and something like that, and he's really really underrated because. He does a lot of heavily visually effects films, such mm -hmm. as like RoboCop, Starship Troopers, Total Recall, and but he's somebody who dives in. His all pretty much all of his films hold up well, um, and he really doesn't get a lot of the credit that he deserves because people people know his work, but they don't necessarily know his name. And it's like. Oh yeah, he did help mold my childhood. I had Steven yeah. Spielberg that show me wonder, and then I had Paul Van Hughes show me ultraviolence growing up. So it's yes. a real kind of a back and forth <laughs> on that. So, um, so definitely just want to shout out credit to him as one of my favorite directors. Yeah, awesome. well, the entire movie has B list written across it with the actors and Paul Verhoeven and stuff, but every single one of them is solid, and some of them have come to the forefront since then. Um, but they just, they executed it meticulously. Just absolute dedication from everybody on board. Oh, yeah. And this was, I think this was uh, one of, because uh, you got Elizabeth Shue, who was, you know, Marty McFly's girlfriend in the sequel, and then in, in Back to the Future, Back to the Future 2. So Elizabeth Shue's gone on, and of course, you know, Daniel LaRusso from Karate Kid, so, you know, and Adventures of Babysitting, 80s actress, you know, she's kicking, still kicking ass, taking names. Kevin Bacon, legendary Kevin Bacon, Josh Brolin's in that. Kim Dickens, um, who uh, everybody should know from Fear the Walking Dead, as Madison, who recently returned uh, to the series. Um, Greg Grunberg, uh, people should know him from uh, from Heroes and from uh, from uh, from Mike Mendez's Big Ass Spider, which he was fucking phenomenal in. I fucking love that movie. Uh, one of the best one of the best entrances to a film I've ever seen. Uh, Joey Slotnick is a legendary character actor who's been around for forever. Uh, William Devane, uh, William Devane, um, who's been in everything. I mean, classy. He was he was the general at the who got who got killed in the pool. So you know, and uh, and Rona Mitra, Rona Mitra, who I think uh, this was one of her earliest roles um, as yeah, with no lines, just the, just the victim in the apartment. So uh, really, really good cast and just really strong talent across the board. Oh yeah, he did, star, he did Starship Troopers too. Starship Troopers, yeah. Total right. Recall, yeah. 
Yeah, people didn't even realize Starship Troopers is one giant, like, uh, parody. <laughs> and people oh, yeah. took it serious. And like, <laughs> fuck yeah. yeah. Would you like <laughs> to know more? I don't think you like this for the... <laughs> I don't think you're getting the message <laughs> that you're supposed <laughs> to be getting in this. It was a I joke. Was, you weren't it's supposed called, to live it it's out. It's called satire. Satire. No, no, don't. No, it's like it's like it's like fucking Mike Judge with idiocracy. No, don't don't run with it. Don't run with it. It's not. This is a model. Damn it. I, I love that. If you ever get a chance to watch the riff tracks of Starship Troopers, it is one of the most hilarious things because they're like, okay, I get it. It's a Nazi analogy. Okay, I see some SS markers on some of the uniforms. Then you have Neil Patrick Harris walk in with a hat and a black trench coat. They're like, right. I get it. He's an SS officer. All right. Please run into the ground some more. <laughs> All right, audience. What we want to know, which version of The Invisible Man do you think was the best? You can email us at weekendhorror at gmail.com. Let us know in the comments or in the side chat. I've got no answer. I don't know. Um, Claude Rains is always going to be a favorite just because, you know, the, he originated the, the Universal Monster. Um, I love Claude Rains' performance. It was just, it was just manically fun. Just the fun that he had with that role. Just the, from the opening scene. Ha 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 You know, just, I love what he brought to that role. And I love Kevin Bacon in this. And some people might, might dig Chevy Chase from Memoirs of an, Invis of an Invisible Man. Although, though, that yeah, was I a like comedy. Yeah. Back before I... Learn to recognize what a good horror movie was. I enjoyed the hell out of that one. And then the the but uh, the most I have to admit the most recent one I thought was really fucking good. Uh, from, yeah. from, uh, the Elizabeth Moss one from Blumhouse. Damn that that was a fucking phenomenal and nothing like supernatural or crazy like just just tech you know tech that borders on that borders on supernatural. But once you figure it out, it's it's just tech. And I really really dig that one. Instead of centering it around the Invisible Man himself, they centered it around the victim, which was so much more effective because instead of being like we were talking about the voyeuristic aspect here where you're in the seat of the killer, and that one, you just had no idea where he was at any given time, and so it kind of increased that suspense factor. By that that, that whole sequence where she's sitting there in the room, and she's like, he, he's, and you know he's in that fucking chair looking at her. And just, you know, the, I love the ten, the tension in that. Not to mention one of the most balls-out fight scenes. Is it a fight scene? It's one person. It, you know, it's like, it's just her. It still, <laughs> still counts, but I mean, you want to talk about a really good jump scare when she's in the attic. Yes, on the ladder. She's like, yeah, she's like, and she has like the attic door open. And I think she throws like paint on something. On she him. threw paint down the deal, yeah. and he was he, and he was right there. Standing there. I was like, oh, that would that actually got me a little bit because it, it was that good tension build up. It was like, where's the phone ringing from? The phone is up here. The knife. What the fuck? And then she grabs she grabs a paint can. And is like, and well, she was she was dropping paint down there to see if and. and then she grabs a paint and then she throws it down there and he's already like up, like almost up there in, up there with her. I was like, yeah, that, like that got me. Like almost face to face. Yeah, that that got me. Up in the <laughs> fuck me, fight me zone because you better do one of the two. <laughs> <laughs> Sir Casm says, Dunno, couldn't see any of them. But <laughs> 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 I'm ping. Yes. <laughs> oh, Angel Rivera says The Invisible Man Returns, 1940. Excellent. Very cool. Jo Joshua Lee says, Stop hitting yourself. Stop hitting yourself. 
Oh, good stuff. Good stuff. <laughs> the best invisible man, John Cena. <laughs> Are you sure about that? <laughs> uh. All right. Next, we have next. We're actually transitioning over to a mini series. Mm-hmm. We have Jekyll that was released August fourth, two thousand and seven. Roll it. All right, that is Jekyll, and the TV series written by Stephen Moffat, who you will probably recognize from Doctor Who, uh, directed by two directors, Douglas. McKinnon and Matt Lipsy and starring Jane Nesbitt, Gina Bellman, Patterson Joseph, Dennis Lawson, Michelle Ryan, Marie Sowell, Fennel Woolgar, and basically the same story that you have here. It's Jekyll undergoes an experiment and then you have him going back and forth between uh, Dr. Uh, ah, bad, bad, if I can talk, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde just going back and forth on it and it lasted one season and has a total of six episodes mm-hmm. on bbc and i'm gonna tell you right now i actually i really enjoyed it i really enjoy i enjoy a lot of stuff from stefan moffat he likes to dive into a lot of philosophical stuff with say going back with doctor who and jekyll provides a lot of really good outlet for that plus on top of that i have there's a lot the cast here is pretty stacked Right. I mean, if you really want to be honest, this has a great stack cast. Um, a couple people, a couple people that I recognize from other shows, uh, such as a little bit from Doctor Who, a little bit from The Coupling, a great uh, British TV show from the early two thousands. Um, just it all. It was just a great show to watch. Oh yeah, you've got James Nesbitt, um, who's just a remarkable stage actor with a with a legendary stage career. But a lot of people may recognize him if yeah uh, from. Uh, but he was Bofer in uh, the Hobbit films, so one of the which which surprised me because I if you go back and look at him as Bofer, he doesn't look anything like he does like he does now. But a uh, legendary actor there, Gina Bellman, um, who people might remember from the show Leverage that she was on that for five for six seasons because the the uh, revival just came out uh, Leverage Redemption. But Gina Bellman, um, also a legendary stage actress, not to mention uh, Patterson Joseph. I love catching Patterson Joseph in this. In this one, he played an American, which is weird because he's really, really British. Like, you know, when he talks, like, uh, the first time I saw him was he was uh, the cult, he was a cult leader in the show The Leftovers on HBO. And he was fucking amazing in that. And uh, then I caught him again in fucking Spaced with Nick Frost, the uh, the Nick Frost uh, kind of like Star, Star Wars, uh, Star Trek send up. And he was just goofy as shit in that. So he can do comedy, he can do the range. I love the fact because this is this is a revisiting of Jekyll and Hyde of uh, of Strange Case, uh, Strange Case of uh, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. And you initially go in thinking that like like uh, some of the characters' performances are a little over the top. You they, they feel a little over the top. But as the story progresses and you get through each episode. Hot, the the energy of James Nesbitt as he is balancing between Doctor Jackman and Mister Hyde as he's balancing between these two and as manic and crazy as as, as Mister Hyde is uh, juxtaposed against the very cool, calm, collected, very scientific and coldly cal- coldly clinical uh, uh, Doctor Jackman. 
everybody around him is kind of the same way. So it really, really balances out. And not, not to mention uh, Michelle Ryan, who I love seeing her and everything. Uh, first thing I saw her was she was in Merlin. She played Nimue, uh, Nimue in uh, Merlin. She was fantastic in that. So strong cast across the board. And I loved this because I, I couldn't wait to talk about this one because we never, ever get to talk about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. This classic Robert Louis Stevenson uh, story about the duality you know, that examines the duality of man and the, the shit that we lock away and we never want to let out. And among of all the universal monsters that got that got tapped, you know, Invisible Man, uh, Frankenstein, Dracula, all the, the great legendary novels that they basically, that uh, that these were pulled from. They Doctor Jekyll and uh, Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde have never really gotten their due. Hyde is a fantastic villain, and it offers up really deep, quite you know, like ex you know, really deep examinations of human nature. And yet, the last time I think I saw it, it's either done in a comedic fashion, like it was in the movie Van Helsing, or it's done kind of tertiarily to something else in the plot, where it's kind of like, oh, we're either going to play off the comedy of like the two separate kind of identities, but it's not really going to be you know a major aspect of the plot, which is a shame. So it was cool to see Stephen Moffat, even though I have to disagree with you. Stephen very much pissed me off with the Doctor, with Doctor Who. I'm one of those ones that think it got really mad at him after uh, after the Christmas special. That's just me. That's just me. I mean, I, <laughs> maybe I'm alone in this. You know, I'm not going to dive into how, how mad he made me with that. But I will say that this is an extremely well written written uh, production. And I was really, really, I was, it was so cool to go back and, and touch on this. Because no one ever fucking does it. No one ever touches this. Especially not in America. Yeah, because really, the, I remember the 1930s version. I'm not exactly sure what year, but the 1930s version, which I don't think we've talked about yet on this podcast. Um, that's the one that really is like, okay, we're going to go the horror element, but it definitely even then had definitely some racist implications on it, on it, kind of the way they route. Also, you got to keep in mind that the film was made in the 30s, um, that they actually went for the horror aspect because he loses control. He actually becomes more kind of ape-like throughout, and he goes and he, he kills the woman he loves and so forth and so forth before um he ends up i believe died in the end and then you're right and then it be, kind of becomes comedic and i think because of maybe some of the roots of where the original come from when you think of mm -hmm. the uh the universe monsters a lot of people haven't dove into it very much right on it because it's kind of like a uh well he becomes bad what level of bad how we are going to betray him to be bad what level it just because of kind of the history of the character a little bit so so some people kind of tip their toes around that's why we haven't seen very much representation of it but i think it's something that could be tapped into and it's great to see people tap into it because it deals with the duality of man once again if you remove the consequences of people's actions what will people do yeah that's the question well, I think one thing, too, that's kind of taken away from the viability of it is that, you know, uh, it's a disassociative identity disorder. I keep wanting to call it multiple personality, but that's, you know, the term they use now for it. We've done so much psychological study on that that this actually feels to a degree like a shallow case of that. I mean, we know 
once you get into it, it's not because he's usually stronger, faster. He's not just the pieces of the personality that Jekyll's missing. Hyde is an entity into and of himself. Um, but like, I've only watched the first episode and prep for this. I, I'm going to watch the others hopefully soon. But if you were to go through it and kind of outline the episode and do an arbitrary outline, not a lot happens in terms of how it affects his life and changes it. But what I find interesting is the intricacy of it. Like they've got the personal recorder that they communicate on, they GPS track, they have agreements, you know, they have uh, the psychologist, the mediator between them and stuff. And those are the things that like really hardcore horror fans are always like little shit we nitpick. Like, why didn't they do this? Yeah. They could have done this. They would have lived and stuff like that. And he actually <laughs> delved into that and kind of turned modern technology to a view of it, to kind of examine it and everything. And it it, it really it really worked out for the better. Like I I love most of his other work because he did Sherlock too, and there's some stuff about Sherlock pisses me off, and we won't discuss the Doctor Who. <laughs> right, right. Thank you, thank you. It's good. To, it's good to be fucking validated on that. Yeah, I mean, I there's a lot of stuff that Moffat did, did that I like, and there's a lot of stuff that Moffat did that I did not like. I'll just simply say that. And my apologies that there I actually mixed it up. It wasn't the Nick Frost uh, Simon Pegg comedy. Um, Space. I, I said space because space, but it was actually hyperdrive. So it was because Nick Frost led that comedy, and it was a brilliant stuff. I wish it lasted longer than it did. But uh, what did what did I got this conversation? Eugene's going on about coupling in the damn chat. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know very many what? people who've ever seen this show because it, it came out like in two thousand. It's a British show. It lasts about four seasons. And it came out in like two thousands, and that was before the, a lot of the stuff started airing over. Over here, so it was a show that just no one ever really, really heard of. So it's very rare. Someone's like, "Oh yeah, I've seen that show. It's a, <laughs> it's a funny show. It's really funny. Very good chance to watch it." What's so, the cool and, thing? Because you were talking about the actors. Is the BBC right. in general? If you watch British TV, you're like, "I've seen them in this. I've seen them in this." It's, it's such, I think, a small population there that they have a very small stock of actors, but. As a side effect of that, I think the cream really rises to the top. So you see great actors appearing in a lot of stuff, and they may not be hugely celebrated like they are over here, but I think they turn out a better product. I'm opinion. actually going to agree with that because uh, British actors typically the the mentality of going into acting is a little bit different over is a little bit di different across the pond than it is here. Whereas there, there's a great there's a, a, a stronger emphasis put on the theater and being in classical training in the theater than there is really put here. Here you can have your your theater actors and then you've got your you've got your your screen actors. So stage stage and screen. And sometimes you get some you know ones that they'll do stage and then they can go and do screen. And people that just do screen occasionally they dabble on stage. But typically no one is really you, know, you don't have here in America we just don't have a lot of people that really are strong on both of them. They, you know, they're good on movies or they're good on stage. And I love that in England because classical theater training is is important. And I it, it's what I am. And I credit, you know, a lot of the thing of I I don't want to sit here and talk about, you know, my skills on all like this, but theater acting taught me a great deal that that film acting never would have. 
And so I love the fact that every single person that is in this is a classically trained theater actor. They came up in theater. That's where they got. Uh, that's where they get the. They they. Uh, that's where they they develop their skills, and then it comes across so wonderfully on screen because you've got James Nesbitt playing. Because when you're on stage, ostensibly you play big. You have to play big because you've got a large audience. You have to play to the back rows. You have to make sure that you're heard. You have to make sure that you know, the face is big. You have to make sure that your emotions are big. And on screen, typically when you're in movies, you play down because the camera is like right there. So you don't need to play things big. You don't need to make sure that you're that you're projecting. So I, but I love it when theater actors get because they bring that same theater energy to the screen. And it always makes characters so much more fun and so much more lively, especially in a universe where like Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. I think that the and and, and of course all kinds of fantasy stories because the Robin Hood series was amazing. Uh, I thought Sherlock was fantastic. That's Benedict Cumberbatch and Marty Freeman, who are both uh, classically trained actors. And then, of course, uh, Doctor Who and uh, the new BBC Dracula, which recently came out, which I thought was absolutely brilliant. So, And I love that that translates better. And that's what made this. And I'll say this. I thought that the script jumped the shark a little bit. I thought the the getting it... I, I don't think I'm spoiling this for anybody, but get, you know, the whole cloning thing... I thought was a little. I I'm not going to divulge too much, but I thought you know I thought like like once again I thought Moffat jumped the fucking shark is what he did, you know he did it with Doctor Who he did it with Sherlock Holmes he fucking did it with this one because that's what Moffat does it's like he gets into the tail end of his storyline and he just like oh he just Harry Winkler's over that motherfucker <laughs> and he just, eats it, just straight up like he just fucking eats it I thought. I thought this was going to go into a cool kind of like genetic memory kind of thing. The way they're sitting there's like, oh no, no, it, it's it's fucking clones. And I'm like, what the fuck, man? <laughs> so uh, maybe he was just trying to pack it all into one thing. I'm not sure. But it's the acting that saves this. Because everyone is fucking phenomenal. Especially James Nesbitt. I got to give him this. He looked like he was having so much fucking fun. You know, he just he just eats the camera. And I love that they, went, they stuck with the classic cinematography technique of... If you notice, every time Jackman is on is on camera, standard framing, you know? But every time Hyde is, twists, turns, there's an angle to it where the perspective is off. Yeah, to reflect to reflect his his skewed perspective on the world. Brilliant stuff. Good good classic filmmaking, good classic acting. Well yeah, and they that's the thing you notice about Hyde too, and it was the thing I worried about at first because in his first transition, they used the camera and they used that they would put it at an odd angle and then flash over really quickly to another really odd angle. And I'm like, if this is how they're going to portray Hyde, this is going to fall flat. But they didn't. He did a great job because he really does combine the mentality of a child where, you know, he does have some ability for love, but he has no regard for consequences and he does what he wants to. And he has an unpredictability to him, so you know you've got a child psychopath wandering he's like around. Pure, he's so. like pure id. Yeah, and it's yeah. they with the camera angle stuff. It's use it, don't abuse it. And you were talking about you know stage acting, and that's one one thing I've worked on a script, and it's still my freaking unicorn script because it's hard to write. It's just uh, about um, Amicus Studios that was Hammer's quote unquote rival. They were in the same era but you would have actors that would come during the day they would shoot with amicus and at night they were back at the stage whereas in america you tend to see 
you know, they have the film career and then they drift off a little bit and they're still doing film and that's when they start really doing stage acting. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas over there, it's it's kind of the reverse. They start with stage and then they transition into film. And uh, I, I think it, it really does sharpen your skills because you're working with less because with stage, the audience is just there. It's just their eyes. You cannot play with cinematography. Your lighting is limited. There are no audio tricks. You bring what you bring, and that's it. Well, then when they transition to film, they're still bringing it, but then you add in everything else that film can add to it, and I think it turns out a better product. I like it more. Agreed. That's why we have our greats. Anthony Hopkins, Patrick Stewart, Ian McKellen, all of the greats that uh, the sirs that we, and the dames, the sirs and the dames, <laughs> yeah, yep. all came up on London stages. Yep, uh, ab- definitely, absolutely. And if one one thing you notice is that it's easier for British uh, actors to play Americans than it is for Americans to play British, because you look at a movie like <laughs> Eternal Sunshine with Kate Winslet, her dialect is perfect. Her accent and everything is perfect. If you didn't know, if you didn't know Kate Winslet was British, you would think she was perfectly out of Jersey, and she's able to hit different regions in the United States flawlessly. Mm-hmm. If you get an American actor that attempts a British accent, if they're halfway close, we just accept it. We're like, yeah, they're trying. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's hard. That's just that's just the way it is. But yeah, the other way around, the British is like perfect, just just about every single time, on it. End up with uh, Keanu Reeves and Dracula, an <laughs> 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 ultimate example. I mean, that's why a lot of movies. It's like the movie could take place in England, and the American actors don't even try. Just you're like, yeah, you know, they're in England, sure. Why not? It's close enough. When you look at was it Kevin Costner in uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves? Ah, close enough. <laughs> well, Tom Holland in Devil all the time. That took place around here, and he nailed the accent. Like the the generic Midwestern zero accent. A lot of them can nail that, but he nailed down a southern accent perfectly without going for the full blown plantation manner. Uh, owner that a lot of them do where it's just like this all the time, even though you're in the mountains. Oh, you mean uh, like, 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 like Don Johnson in, uh, in Django? <laughs> yeah, just shoot him. Just, just do it. Yeah, yeah. That. But, but anyway, so uh, I want to actually ask the audience, do you prefer American horror or BBC horror? Because American horror stuff like um, <clears throat> stuff like uh, oh horror story, I don't know why I'm drawing a blank right now. Because um, I'll start thinking about the Dutch angles and Coven, American uh, horror story, American horror story. Yep. Yeah. If you prefer things like American horror story or just horror shows from America, or do you prefer BBC and British horror films? Let us know in the comments below, or shoot us an email at weekendhorror at gmail Awesome. Yeah, I think we already expressed our opinion on that. So uh, this is about all audience there. <laughs> we have... Oh. oh, we already got a couple coming in right now. Already, Road No Last Name said BBC. U.S. does do some things well. There are there are some good shows. Mm-hmm. BBC does, yeah. 
and iHeart Dogs, BBC. BBC. Awesome. I do that. There's some BBC stuff that I really, really love. A lot more suspense, a lot more mental horror. They're willing to take. I think they're willing to take bigger risks than Amer- than the American uh, American production companies are willing to do. So uh, British can be grittier. I yeah. You know, I really I did. I do dig BBC stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. a lot of love for for uh, BBC. Awesome stuff. All right, our last film that we're going to talk about tonight. This one came out August fifth, nineteen eighty eight, and it's the remake of The Blob. Let's check this trailer. All right. The Blob, 1988. Yes, directed by Chuck Russell. Screenplay by Chuck Russell and Frank Darabont. So, uh, starring Kevin Dillon, Shawnee Smith, who you remember from the Saw films, Donovan Leach, Jeffrey DeMunn, Candy Clark, and Joe Seneca. So this film is a remake of the original 1958 film, The Blob, starring Steve McQueen, where an amoeba-like organism crashes down to Earth and begins to devour and dissolve anything in its path. And of course, uh, the larger it gets, the more the shit gets real. Yeah, it does I, get real. We're just not. I, I, we're just not funny at all tonight. At least I'm not. <laughs> Are you tired? You, you got to be tired. Are you tired? You think Eugene right. is tired? It's been, it's been it's been a very very long day. <laughs> so I'm always tired. So what am I gonna say? <laughs> so going back and watching this one, this one was in this one was intriguing because I couldn't help but watch. I couldn't help but 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 compare it to the original to the because the, the original 1958 one is one of my favorite classic horror classic you know monster movies. And the differences between the two. Because I get the sense from 1958 to 1938, 30 years have taken place. Uh, the mentality of this nation has taken place. We've always talked about how horror is a reflection of, of what's going on in society, kind of a, uh, a barometer for you know the, the, that, which is, that which ails us as, as, a, uh, as a society. And you could definitely tell there was a change in mentality from this, from the original. And maybe there was something lost in translation, maybe there wasn't. But definitely something, something moved in, you know, in between, uh, in the 30 years in between. Well, it's we've talked about it before, and I can't even remember which movie. It was during the black and white episode, but we went through Korea, went through Vietnam. We had the government engaging in all sorts of experiments. We lost trust in our government. It became sort of a separate entity from us, almost. And so that bleeds into the film, and then it, this one is actually I prefer this one over the original. But some of that may be the fact that you know, as a child of the '80s, first seeing this one first, it's got a nostalgia to it that i really like but they you've got the cultural differences where you know the government is suddenly um this is their fault and they're trying to patrol it up and they don't care about the citizens but they also do the smart job of not just scrapping the original and saying well we're ditching everything we're taking the creature and we do what we want with it because they took a lot from the original and they modified it heavily but they they kept the town that was almost town itself almost froze in the 50s or 60s the adults were very similar to that and then you have these teenagers who are very modern in the way they act and they put more focus on these teenagers and the background of what they're going through and what they do before events start to unravel 
and it was very commercially smart for them because the 80s they knew who their audience was it was teenagers so they would identify them with with the characters a little more easily um and it i'm trying to think of how to it's like they kept what worked and they paid homage properly because they still use some of the same techniques they didn't ditch them completely they improved them because i think the most iconic scene is the theater scene where the ooze is coming out of the projection booth and you can tell in the original one if you've got a good eye for it or if you know what's going on that it's a miniature they've overlaid film whereas on the newer one they did something very similar but i think they use cgi because you could tell still tell that they're oozing this thing out of a miniature but they've got better effect they have a it, it would look horrible now by comparison but during the time they've got a better overlay setup and everything and they took and transition or transplanted what originally happened into what we would do now so they did an amazing job of recognizing who was watching this what cultural situation they were in what the good commercial appeal was to apply to it and I think these, I mean, I honestly think they did a great job with it, which is just a lot of why it's my favorite. See, and I'll be honest. Gail's dog disagrees. And I, I agree <laughs> because I really enjoyed this. And this may be the nostalgia factor also because this was one I was one of the first movies I ever saw. I was uh, about four years old at the time. And I saw a little bit of a little bit. I started maybe five or six when I finally first saw it. Um, and it's one. This was one of the kind of films that I grew up with, and so loved it. It was creepy. It had some. It had some great moments. I love when I was little. It gave me nightmares about the waitress in the phone booth when it like takes the covers the entire phone booth and then oh, it like yeah. crashes in on her. It's like I was like, what are you gonna do with the phone booth? You have nowhere to go. Um, and the, it, the we, sheriff is the big hope, and all of a sudden his face is against your window, and you're like. Lara, that went, you know. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> or yeah, Rodent Nola Sam brings up, I love that they set up the football star as the hero, and then they kill him in the first 20 minutes. Yeah. And, of course, the kid the kid that gets grabbed in the sewer, and that's that whole sequence, I know that uh, the, that one sat with me for a while, seeing that the, the, the body comes out, ah, like this, you know. There was so, so much. There was, they put, this is the thing that got me on it, is like, I, I I'm in a I'm kind of in a in a fit I'm I'm in a fifty fifty with this one. First and foremost, I loved the I love the classic story of the Blob, the original classic one, because it's the it's the quintessential it, it's the quintessential American hero without going so without going far into nationalism. I love the classic the the quintessential story of the guy of just the the average everyday man becoming the hero of the story. The community coming together, working together against a common threat, and then taking this thing down. 1958 it was the perfect time for it. You know, monster movies were a big thing, and people coming together to defeat some great evil, to defeat some great threat. I, I I enjoyed that. It had all the classic tropes that you have of a 1950s horror film, and there's a reason why it went. It you know was moved from the B film to the A slot um, when it first when it released. I just enjoy it. I like the story. I'm also a big Steve McQueen fan. But this one, 30 years later, the one, the thing that got me, obviously, distrust in the government. Now it's the government's fault. Now it's the government that's done this to us. It's the government's ineptitude. The government's a fucking failure. You know, by that time, 1958, they've been through Korea. They've been through Vietnam. And now in Iran, Iran-Contra and all the fucking bullshit is coming out. 
Nobody trusts the government. They're all fucked up. They don't know what they're doing. They essentially created this thing, and now it's loose, and now it takes us, not the people, not the normal people who uh, of like you know the idyllic small little town that are going to save it. No, it's not going to be them. It's going to be the the rebel. It's going to be the Gen Xer. It's going to be the one who stands out from the crowd, the one who thinks for himself and doesn't fall into these whole like you know all these tropes of like conformity and you know whatever that's going to save the day. And so everything has flipped. The entire mentality has flipped. So this is the, the I think the two films put together or set uh, set next to each other really showcase American mentalities. Uh, of the time period and how it's telling the same story but it's in the nuances like you said the little bits and pieces so that's the one thing it got me because it kind of lost me i was like do we really have to go that far do we really have to lose one of the strongest parts of the of the original just to convey this kind of deferring mentality but then again that's what horror does so i can't complain too much horror reflects our society that's what it does and this is the kind of mentality where we were going your whole like, uh, I'm I'm all for it. You know, I'm I'm with the group. You know, this conformist kind of thing. That's not going to save you anymore. It's going to take out of the box thinking. It's going to take the the person who stands out from the crowd, the person who's willing to think for themselves, the, the to, uh, to think on their feet and not you know, and not play into the group, not play into group mentality or group think, or just couch out of the government. They're the ones that are going to be the ones to save us. So I get that. It's, you know, sign of the times. But I will say on the other side. While that side kind of depressed me, I fucking love the practical effects in this. And how they pulled this shit off. From, and it's, and it, of all of them, the theater scene, the sewer scene, you know, in the, uh, when, it, when it's like eating the girl in the truck, that one, that's fucked up. That, that one was twisted. It's the fucking, um, and the, 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 the toll booth scene, yeah, uh, it's the fucking sequence. Um, shit. Now, now I've lost it. I, what's up? The, the variety of the kills too impressed me because it's so easy to just have it kill the same way every time. It's gonna absorb somebody and slowly and eat them or whatever. It's gonna drop from the ceiling. But the number of ways it kills and the way it executes the use of its mass to ooze over somebody or grab somebody just—they went all the way with that full nine yards and that takes different each one takes a different setup to execute the effects which means more money more effort and they did not hesitate and they didn't back down because every single time somebody dies you're just like holy shit <laughs> oh it's fucking it's fucking awful and it you know and while the the while they did a, a magnificent job and you have to go back and watch this. If you can go back and watch this in the in the in the the 4K version, it's it's brilliantly done. The way they set up the the first big major kill is when the kid is when the football player gets grabbed in the police. Uh, I think it's in the police station, and so the thing's got him and it's like swarming over him and like his hands is like oh, you know, and then she tries to grab him and you know, it, as the thing is dragging over him, pieces of him are coming off underneath there. Because it's essentially dissolving him and just ripping, and it looks it looks awful. But it's the fucking garbage disposal scene. Yep, that and one what fucking that entails. Oh, that, that what it entails. That gets me yeah. every fucking time. That it's just how ha fast it's digesting him. Oh, that and just going it, it yanked into a fucking drain. That's awful. Just horrible. Head first, no less. 
that's, that's, that, that. that's one of the great things about this movie is so many memorable kills because you'll have a lot of uh, creature feature slashes, whatever. They'll have one or two memorable kills. Like, oh, that's the one they invested in, clearly. Right. And then some other, maybe they die off screen or something like that. But as we're talking about here, there's so many great kills because that, I'm thinking of like where they're barricading the door and then it grabs, I remember it grabs that one guy and bent him in half backwards. Right. And like sucked him out through the, and you're just like, oh, he just broke his back. And it just, Memorable, memorable kill after memorable kill after memorable kill, in this, it's, it's fantastic. From little things, from from little things like extreme stuff to like you know being dragged into a fucking into a garbage disposal drain to just in the in, the, in like when she's trapped in the phone booth and then she's like oh you know call the sheriff and then the sheriff floats by, still kind of twitching and shit. You know, it's like oh that's fucking that's awful. That is horrible. It's just, and it's just plus like one of my favorite dying right there. <laughs> one of my favorite kid. One of my favorite because I laugh out loud every time I see it. But when the one guy's running, ah, da, 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 and then the big, the big like uh, flagellum just, <laughs> and then this run, <laughs> and then rolls back, and he's stuck in it like he's like, what? <laughs> the fucking thing is like flypaper and shit. Oh, I fucking love it. Oh, it's great. <laughs> At the barricade, too, like, you see all these movies where a monster gets through a barricade through a hole, and they, they beat it back, and they seal the hole. When it reaches through, grabs him, and snaps his back, that tells you one thing, that as soon as that second touches you, or it's the second thing, thing touches you, you're dead. However it's doing it, whatever its method of execution, whether it's grabbing you, sucking in, whatever, the second its little nasty-ass slimy tentacles are on you, you're dead. You're done. So they were very smart about them too, because it's not just a kill. It's telling you something else about what this thing can do, and the fact that this town is slightly fucked. Right. To put it bluntly. Wrote it no last name says uh, we at Weekend and Horror, The practical effects are as good as the thing. Fight me. I'm just watching JL's face right now. I'm smiling because I'm, I'm <laughs> gonna do because uh, the, the the practical effects of the thing, obviously, bar none. Uh, Rob Botton's work on that fucking magnificent. Yeah. You know, the fact that he almost killed himself to do that movie. One year solid, 12 hour days, 12, 16 hour days to, to make those, to make those effects. Brilliant shit. Um, uh, but I love the stuff in this one and the way the blob kind of changes over time where different aspects of, it, you know, it starts out kind of like this nice, like bright little pink and the more people it absorbs, the, the kind of redder it gets as it's taking in as it's taking in more uh, more organic material and dissolving more people, I just I, I love the progression of it, and it made it all the more terrifying. It really did, and I I invite everyone if you're curious because we brought up the thing because Rodin LSM brought up the thing. We did a bloodbath debate of the Blob versus the Thing, and I think that was me and you, wasn't it, Eugene? Yeah, because I I argued uh, the no, it was me and Alex. I it was you and Alex? Thing. Yeah. I argued the thing. And okay. uh, I think Alex argued the blob. Now that was a that was a good bloodbath. So if you're curious about that, you can go back and check out that bloodbath debate, uh, the blob versus the thing, and determine who if you if you think who would win if uh won, because we, we argued that one uh I think that one was one of our better ones. But well, yeah, it when it starts out too, it's the same slime from Ghostbusters 2 that's in the sewers. I don't know what it's made of. I need to find out. 
but it's that same slightly purple orange slime and everything. And then when this thing gets rolling, it's like that thing doesn't give a shit about happy music. It's fucking eating everybody. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, we forgot about the dude. Uh, how they did that one sequence. The uh, the guy in the um, the the lead dude. The the lead guy was like, I want I want a sample of it alive. The guy when he got. Uh, when he uh, was in the oh, yeah. in the manhole cover, and then it just like that. That oh, way, that was, yeah, like inside the suit. And, he and just when he got inside the suit, I was like, yeah. oh yeah, you're fucked up. Yeah, <laughs> well, you can tell like, they did. They did a cut away from him, back to him, and the slime's covering the face. And you know they did that to get a stunt man in there because they beat the shit out of that guy when they <laughs> came down into that sewer, and it would have killed that old man. <laughs> Oh, it's fantastic shit! I really, really, I really love this one. Um, like I said, I have a, I kind of have a love hate relationship. With it. I, I think that they sacrifice. And modernizing doesn't always mean it's going to be better. Unfortunately, I think it's a matter of what, you know, what parts of the story are you willing to save? What we, like you said, like Aaron said, it's pretty much they went with what they went with what the, the what the culture reflects now, and they they made the, they made the changes that to play to an audience of today. This they're not playing to an audience of 1958. They're playing to the audience of 1988, so that's important. It just—it was just a bummer because the whole Steve McQueen kind of every man becoming the hero and bringing the town together to fight the monster was a, is kind of like it was important to the original story. But nonetheless, they made up for it with some phenomenal, amazing effects, and not to mention, yes, the Rodinell's name brings up the creepy preacher at the end with the uh, with the jar, the preacher with the jar ending. The apocalypse is coming. Oh, it'll be here sooner than you think. It's like, oh fuck. Yeah. <laughs> Since from the beginning, when they pick that actor, you're like, oh shit, he touches children. Oh god. Oh, he's, he's one of those. He's one of those. Yeah. <laughs> but I have to ask the audience, which one was your favorite? The original 1958 Steve McQueen original monster movie or this remake, the 1988 uh, Dylan remake. That was definitely grittier, more gross, more fantastic in the in the in the effects and in the practical in the practical effects and conveying what the blob was and definitely the horrific deaths of it. Which one's your favorite, the original or the remake? Let us know in the comments below or in the live chat here at weekendhorrorgmail.com. And I'm seeing a lot of love for the remake, lots of love. And, and it, honestly, it's one of those. It's a textbook on how to do a remake. Right. Yeah. Really is. Angel original is my first. I think that's what's going to kill it, honestly, is the, just the age range. And so many of us were, you know, young people, teens in the 80s that it just it made a permanent impression because it's terrifying right. as fuck at that age. Oh, it, it, I think I saw this. I think I saw this in 88 when it came out. It was either it was 88 or 89. And the kid scene haunted me for a long time because I'd never I, I'd never seen a kid killed like that on screen. And I was like, they they went there, and I was like, kids can die too. Oh, this is not good. <laughs> I didn't see it until like eighty, or actually nineties, like early nineties. It would have been a couple of years because of my age range. And uh, but I do remember being at the video store, the rental store. Oh, how I missed the. But the damn cover on the VHS box was terrifying as shit. That guy getting absorbed by the slime, and you're just like. What the fuck is this about? I want to see it, but I'm afraid to see it. Yeah, definitely. 
All right, yeah, we got Charlie Welch is at 88 for sure. Travis Brown says the remake. Rodella's name says 80s, N-A-N-A, 88. Gotta love the 80s. Fucking 80s, man. I love it. It's my favorite decade. Uh, Rodella's name says, though, son of Blob eating a kitten. What the fuck? <laughs> so <what> that's about. <laughs> Diagnosis horses, I like them both, but I remember the 80s version better. Absolutely. And that, we got some love there. Angel Rivera says, original, it was my first. Sally Skeleton as well. Steve McQueen, he's just awesome. Yep, can't beat Steve. Such a shame that he didn't, that Steve McQueen didn't think the movie was going to do very well, so he took, I think he took like the minimum pay. I think he took like five grand for the movie. He was like, I, this movie's not going to do great. So he like took like the bare minimum to do the movie because he had to pay, I think he had to pay rent and he had to like eat. So he's like, I'm just taking this one so I can pay the bills. And he took five grand just off the top, take $5,000 to do the movie, and then it fucking exploded. So th- that missed opportunity. That's such a shame. Yeah, uh, and you got to eat. You got to eat. Yeah, yeah when you got to eat, yeah, this is true. This is true. And a lot of Tony Regime, Steve, uh, Tony Regime, Steve McQueen for the win. And Josh Lee says, I actually have to watch them. <laughs> <laughs> well, definitely let us know after you watch the two of them. All right. Well, I think it's about that time. I think it's trivia time. Yes. Get all prepped and get the live chat up here. Hell yeah. All right. So Aaron's got the trivia question tonight. And don't forget, as we talked about at the beginning, this is your opportunity, your one and only opportunity to win either a limited edition 150th episode pint glass or mug your choice to whoever the winner is we will ship that out directly to you but this is it this is the one chance that you can win this one this will not be available again i'm gonna leave it up just uh, probably about a week maybe a little bit less on the teespring store if you want to go ahead and get one now but it's not this is going to be one of the the i think this will be one of the more highly sought after items that we have sold so uh featuring the artwork of the custom artwork of joshua olsen so uh aaron when you're ready Give them the trivia question. All right, here we go. Get your Google fingers ready. Might not do you too much good, because if you're not a listener, you might be out of it on this. <laughs> <laughs> an, intre- an intrepid searcher. If your Google foo is strong, you can find the answer to this. What was the very first movie Week in Horror ever covered? Oh, Pete, what was the very first movie Week in Horror ever covered? I've actually listened to this one. I've gone back and listened to some of the older ones, and I did listen to this, and it was good, but it was chaotic. (laughs) (laughs) It so was. It was so fucking chaotic, man. We had no idea what we were doing. (laughs) I think I was listening to it on a... uh... Um, uh, in my truck, and I stopped going to convenience store, come back out, start playing again. I'm like, where the fuck is this? What? What's going on? (laughs) Well, we got some. We got some guesses coming in. We got some. Let's see. Uh, Dinosaurus says Debbie does Dallas. No, not Debbie does Dallas. That's the other podcast. Charlie Welch says Friday the Thirteenth. Nope, not Friday the Thirteenth. Uh, let me see. Josh Lee says Plan Nine from Outer Space. Nope, not Plan Nine. Charlie Welch says Nightmare on Elm Street. Nope, not that one either. <laughs> oh, and uh, Anna said Mary Poppins. <laughs> there are some people who argue. There's a there's a theory that Mary Poppins is the same species as uh, Pennywise. Uh, I've seen that before. Yeah. They, they, they actually make a pretty good argument. It, it's weird. <laughs> Charlie Welch says... <laughs> Charlie, it's Reddit people. They're, they're, they're the ones that do that. Charlie Welch says Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Nope. Angel Rivera says Brightburn. No. Charlie Welch says Puppet Master 5. Nope. Uh, oh, there's Brightburn again. 
Now, Brightburn, we, we covered Brightburn, but that was a few months. That was months ago. Charlie Welch says, The Thing! No, unfortunately not The Thing. And Ivy Gantry, no, it's not The Descent either. So, I promise you, the, the episode is up there. The episode is there. Confused. You will find it. The very first movie that Week in Horror ever covered. It's in our. It's obviously in our very first episode. Joshua so, Lee, the Human Speed. No, we human reenacted says, that, but we did not. <laughs> <laughs> Why does that suddenly remind me of the Key and Peele sketch when the, the the three people they they meet each other after after it was all over? To hey, you were the front. He was like, I was in the middle. I, no, it wasn't fun at all for me. <laughs> So they're, claim, so they're claiming that the, the videos only go back to episode 35. The videos only go back to episode 35, but our podcast is on other sources, such right. as iHeartRadio, um, iTunes. I, I, go, um, uh, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Anchor.fm, Spotify. We're all over there, so... Oh, Charlie was in Passion of the Christ. <laughs> so, de- so definitely look at some of the so look at some of the other iPod, uh, some of the other podcasts uh, sites that have them. You all see how I did this? We've got it. We've got it. Angel Rivera. Angel Halloween Rivera. Six. Correct. Halloween Six: The Curse of Michael Myers. That is correct. So Angel Rivera went all the way back to the very first episode that released uh, in 2000, September of 2019 to find the very first movie we talked about was Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. Oh, there was a some very other... angry Jorg because he <laughs> says, "God damn it!" I just <laughs> he just really, he's reminding reminds me of like fucking Gordon in, in the Tim Burton Batman. God damn it, we had him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great stuff! H. Jasper, he said, "Killer clowns from outer space." Charlie Welch said, "Child's Play." Uh, Charlie Wells also said The Shining. Man, they were just just hammering him out, just trying to hit it. <laughs> yes, uh, Joshua Lee, that was a doozy, absolutely. And Angel Vera would like the pint glass. Fantastic. Yep, got the pint glass down. Terrific. Well, congrats. Oh, and wrote it in the last name. Says fuck, and I just pulled it up. <laughs> oh man! So congratulations, Angel Rivera. I know that that was a tough one. That really, really was. And I didn't want to give away too much because I could have gone like, yeah, you're going to have to go to the podcast site in order to figure that out. No, I wanted y'all to do the work. I wanted y'all to figure it out. But congratulations to Angel Rivera for uh, uh, figuring that out that one out, the very first movie that we ever talked about on Week in Horror. Technically, I have, I have to point this out. We didn't go live with the first two episodes. So it technically wasn't really the very first movie we talked about, but it's the first one we broadcast. So. First one you'll admit to. First one we'll admit to. The first two episodes are so fucking bad, man. If we ever release like a DVD that's like a compilation of episodes, we may put it as like bonus features on that fucker, but goddamn, they were bad. That, that would be like a, a special code in on DVDs where they have like the special menu. Right. Yeah, the little hidden Easter egg menu. Yeah, we ought to do that. We're about to have three complete seasons. We ought to release uh, release them on uh, on DVD, like a, like a like a collection of it. Oh yeah. man, that was fun. I, I I'm so glad that worked out. So congratulations again, uh, Angel. We're gonna get that uh, that pint glass printed and sent out to you ASAP. And of course, 
uh, for a very, very limited amount of time. The 150th episode limited edition artwork is going to be available via paint glass or on mug. The mug comes in white or black. Those are available on Teespring. That link is down in the description. Be sure to get yours before time runs out because that's not going to be up for long because next episode is our 151st. So be sure to grab one uh, soon. It'll grab one quick if you want to grab one. And that will bring another episode of Weekend Horror to a close. Thank you all so much for listening, and we truly hope you enjoyed the show. Join us next week. We look back at the Italian 50s horror, Quack Quacktiki. Caltiki. Caltiki, the immortal monster, the only Oscar winning universal monster film, Phantom of the Opera. The Greek horror film, Land of the Minotaur, and the debut of an iconic mask in Friday the 13th, Part 3. A massive shout-out to all of our amazing patrons who continue to help us make Weekend Horror the incredible success it has become. Thank you all so much. Joshua Olson does all of our amazing artwork for his show, and his designs are, as you've seen, hit his store up at www. BadSamurai.store For more horror fun, be sure to follow us on all the socials for daily horror pod, horror posts. Yeah, I can't talk today. Be sure to combat the evil algorithm by dropping a comment, liking, subscribing, and smashing the living fuck out of that bell. And lastly, if you love what we do here, like to and are able to support our production you can by joining and enjoying the tasty benefits of one of our many patron tiers but if patreon is not your flavor so your favorite stocking method you can always support us directly through our paypal links to everything including our discord community where you can hang out with us and in that and in the description below one day i'll remember the read this is my uh, how to director read. not an actor yeah i'm not <laughs> i'm just not <laughs> and remember the goal is global horror domination if we can't do it without you if we can't do it without you <laughs> if we can't do it without you we'll figure it the fuck out <laughs> That's like butchered. Though. We'll just do it fucking live, man. <laughs> we'll do it ourselves. <laughs> so yes, definitely help us out uh, by sharing our show. We broke you, Gene. <laughs> Thank you so much for being the greatest audience a podcast can have. I'm Eugene. I'm JL. I'm Aaron, and I will see you all in hell. <laughs> Sally, <laughs> Sally Skeleton says, good thing he's sexy. <laughs> I'm the looks. That's it. Oh, we'll see you next week and always stay scared. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs>